Happy holidays, everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and as, al- as always, I have my co-host with me, Scott Harvey. Scott, on the last podcast, you asked me what my favorite holiday movie was, so this time I'm turning the tables and asking you a holiday-themed question. What's your favorite holiday tradition? Oh, gosh, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, soon, soon my, my favorite holiday tradition is going to be doing our best of the year, um, you know, podcast together. But of course, you know, we haven't, we haven't done it yet. So I guess we can't really call it a tradition yet. But I mean, I would say like keeping it on a a movie theme, you know, and just entertainment theme, pop culture theme in general. One of the things that I do love about this time of the year is when critics and everyone is, are coming out with their best lists and comparing it to, you know, uh, you know, what I've seen, what I've liked this year, making my playlist of favorite songs from this year, just in general, like using this time of the year to look back over, you know, what we've loved in pop culture and also just looking at it from a more personal standpoint, you know, what has gone on in our lives over the past 365 days really just puts things in perspective. Um, So yeah, I guess maybe not a specific thing, but just sort of the feeling of nostalgia and and, uh, closure in a sense that, that comes with this time of year. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. I was, I was, I would have said the same thing that my our end of year, uh, not it's not awards, right? It's our, kind of our end of year top yeah. ten episode because we'll get to awards later on. But uh-huh. that is that's going to be a cool thing that we'll start doing. Last year we we sort of did it in you know a precursor to the podcast. It was only a top three, but you know this year we you know we really seen a lot of movies and really have a lot to, to narrow it down from. You know, in, in past years, if someone asked me to do a, a top 10 movie list, I'd only probably have to weed out a handful to get down to my top yeah. 10. But this year, you know, we're close to, close to, if not already peaking 60 movies, uh, yeah, each. The mule, the mule today was actually my 60th movie. So, yeah. And still got more to see. So absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think I'm up around 62, 63, 64, something like that. Last time I checked just cause I've seen such a flurry the last couple weeks to kind of catch up. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited. Some of them, of course, will be easy to weed out, and and others will be a little bit more of a challenge. See, see if you were on letter, if you were on Letterbox, yeah, like all the cool, like all the cool kids, then you would have you know a very uh, convenient diary of everything that you've seen this year waiting for you. Well, but, you know, know, I should. Alas, that'll maybe maybe that'll be my New Year's resolution. I do have my own little private little Google Doc where I have some formulas okay, running yeah. to to help things. So not, I mean, I have my share I, with the world. Get on Letterbox. Hey, I mean, anyone with a link could get to my <laughs> to my Google. My Fair Google enough, feed. but I don't think you're giving that out for the holidays, probably. Uh, well, you know, if someone asked for it, maybe I would. But uh, no, I, I in that list, I have of course my scores for every movie, which does that. That's one way to sort your top ten. But obviously, there's going to be some manual sorting involved in that as well, because right. the movie that I rank the, the highest score might not be my favorite movie of the year. So yeah. We'll see. But all right. 
Well, we've already been talking about it a little bit. It's the end of the year, which means, just like you said in the last episode, we're in the midst of awards season, and today we're having a heavily awards-themed show, where later on we'll be giving our full thoughts on the nominations for both the Golden Globes and the SAG Awards. But before that, we'll be reviewing two more movies, one with admittedly a little bit more awards buzz than the other. That's Roma. But we're starting the podcast today with Clint Eastwood's most recent actor-director combo film, The Mule. Based on the real-life true story chronicled by the New York Times reporter Sam Dolnick and adapted for the big screen by Nick Shank, The Mule follows Clint Eastwood's Earl Stone, a stand-in for real-life Sinaloa cartel drug mule Leo Sharp, a war veteran who has lived out his years since his time in the military as a professional horticulturist. When internet sales and his anti-technology practices catch up with him in the 20-teens, however, he finds his farm and his house in foreclosure with nowhere to turn after many years of estrangement from both his wife, played by Diane Viest, and his daughter, played by Eastwood's own daughter, Allison Eastwood. When he shows up on the doorstep of his granddaughter, played by Tessa Farmiga, on the day of her bridal shower, a shouting match ensues between Earl, his ex-wife, and his daughter. In need of a source of income to survive and to make amends for his past mistakes, Earl at first unwittingly takes a job ferrying drugs from the U.S.-Mexico border to Chicago, but eventually Earl's success attracts the attention of Bradley Cooper's Colin Bates, based on the real-life DEA agent Jeff Moore, and the rest of the movie chronicles how long Earl is able to juggle both aspects of his life, his job as a drug mule, and his family. Scott, that leaves me with a question to get our discussion started. Did you ride the high of Clint Eastwood's latest production, or might it have been a bit of an overdose of Eastwood? <laughs> well, you know, there's nothing, Scott, there's nothing I love more than going into a movie and being pleasantly surprised by what, you know, because with every movie I go into, I have expectations based on what I've read, based on trailers and everything. And, and so there's nothing I love more than when I can go into a movie and those expectations are subverted. And I think that's exactly what this movie did for me. Um, I went in, uh, you know, expecting a, a very particular type of movie. And I think there are certainly flashes of the movie that I expected. Um, you know, we do have Clint Eastwood grumbling around, being racist, you know, uh, complaining about the internet um, at various moments in this movie, which I couldn't help but laugh, you know, at some of the times when he's going off about, you know, kids on their cell phones and everything. Uh, and, and actually, in one particular scene, this large muscular man on his cell phone, <laughs> which was a rather amusing vignette in the movie. But um, but actually, what I think this movie is, is something really very different from what I was expecting, which uh, it, it's a almost like very weirdly sort of touching uh, story about a man who, like, through this experience running drugs, learns, like, the importance of having, getting your priorities straight in life and putting family above work. Um, and I think that it, it looks at this idea in some interesting ways. I mean, of course, you have this stuff with Clint Eastwood and his family, which I think is, is strong for the most part. But also, I think that. I really was interested in, and honestly would have liked if the movie had gone even further down this territory with Clint Eastwood's character and some of the relationships that he has with the people who are actually in the cartels. So that some of the, you know, the drug dealers, the, the Hispanic uh, folks that he gets involved with um, and, and sort of forms a weird sort of relationship and bond and camaraderie with some of these guys. Um, and, I would, and there are some nice scenes which really play off of that, and I would have loved to see even more of that. But ultimately, I think this movie, you know, gets the point across, again, in a, in a sort of oddly moving way that I really wasn't expecting from this type of movie. You know, Clint Eastwood, I think, 
a lot of people would say he that he's a stronger director than he is an actor. Um, and at the same time, you know, you know what you're going to get with him as a director. You're going to get a very straightforward film. You know, you're not going to get a lot of subtlety. But you know, not every film has to be the 400 blows. So I appreciate his style of filmmaking. I think it is well suited to a story like this. And again, even though I knew what I was expecting. I, I, I had an expectation going into the movie, and I, I knew what I thought I was going to get with Clint Eastwood's filmmaking style. He did surprise me in the directions that the story takes um, throughout the movie. And I also think, from an acting perspective, he gives a really great performance in this movie. One of, one of his best performances that I've seen in a long time. And he makes you uh, root for this character, even though when you really think about it, when you really look at it, there's not a lot of reasons why you should be rooting for this character. Like we, It's something we talked about with... Melissa McCarthy and Can You Ever Forgive Me? She somehow has, uh, you know, this sort of intangible quality, you know, this charisma to her acting persona that gives this character, that makes this character compelling even when they shouldn't be. And I think that that's really important for this movie because obviously the, the movie really lives or dies based on whether you care about this character of Earl Stone or not. And I did care about him. Uh, and I think that this movie, while it's not going to be on my best list, it's not going to be an awards contender. Uh, again, I was very pleasantly surprised. And I think this is one of the best movies that Clint Eastwood has made in a really long time. So I enjoyed it. All right. Well, there you go. I, I wasn't sure how you would react to this movie. I did see it a few days before you did. And, you know, I obviously will have my own thoughts that I'll talk about in a second. But I, I, I guess one thing I, I didn't know is how you felt about Eastwood in general. So it's, it's interesting to get that context around how you enjoy his filmmaking, maybe more so than his acting. But I think you're absolutely right. I think Clint Eastwood's acting perfectly suits this role in this film. We talk a lot about on the podcast uh, roles that really you know, are kind of in the wheelhouse, so to speak, a certain actors. And I certainly think this is an example of one. I, yeah. I don't mean to directly compare these roles, but it, this is a very comfortable role for Clint Eastwood. Not unlike how I would have said that Tom Hanks's role in The Post last year was a very comfortable role for him. I do think that Clint Eastwood does more with this role than than Tom Hanks did. But if we, if we kind of put him on the on the spectrum of, oh, like, you know, on our last episode, we talked about how Emma Stone did something, did, did a new kind of role for her in The Favorite. And, and this one, it, this is a, a very familiar role for Clint Eastwood, yet, you know, he, he, he rocked it. You know, he, he did everything that, well, I would say his director asked him to do, but, you know, he did everything that he asked himself to do. And uh, he, he performed really strongly. I think that you're absolutely right. This movie lives and dies about whether or not you care about Earl Stone. And... To me, part of that is the acting performance of Clint Eastwood, and part of it is the direction of Clint Eastwood. Like the film is framed in a way where, yeah, you're giving plenty, you're given enough reasons to not like this character about how you know how often over the course of, of you know time that he has disregarded his family. But at the end of the day, all things considered, it doesn't really paint him in that negative of a light relative to how he probably actually was as a as a husband and as a father and and obviously I think that pays off for you know you ultimately rooting for for Eastwood's character as he tries to redeem himself so in that sense I think it's a smart bit of filmmaking to keep the audience engaged uh, but that that being said I don't think that takes away from the fact that you know this person this guy does realize the mistakes that he's made 
And, you know, all things considered, it probably is too late to really make amends. Yet he goes about his, his, his you know, his job as, as a drug mule to, to make money, to be able to be almost a, a Robin Hood of sorts at times with, yeah. you know, how he how he treats the the veterans facility in his hometown and how he gives money to that to rebuild it. But, you know, but also, of course, to, to funding his granddaughter's wedding or at least the open bar at his granddaughter's wedding. So he's trying to make amends in that way. And, and I think that an unbiased observer of the situation probably might say, well, you know, that that's probably not good enough but you know this movie frames it in a way that shows you know maybe it isn't good enough but that being said he's trying and ultimately of course by the end of the film it, you know there there is some resolution with that plot thread yeah i agree and i mean you know regarding clint eastwood's acting i think you know given his his body of work i don't know that i i was expecting you know, he, he doesn't have, let's put it this way, he doesn't have a lot of range as an actor, um, mm-hmm. sadly. But but I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think yeah. what, we, what we've seen is that he knows his limitations as an actor, so he casts himself in roles that he thinks that he can do well. And I think that his familiarity in playing this type of role adds a lot to why we care about the character, sort of in the same way that, you know, Sylvester Stallone, again, not an actor who has a lot of range, but because we, you know, are so used to seeing him as Rocky Balboa, because we love him as this character, uh, you know, it works and it works really well, as we talked about when we when we reviewed Creed two. Um, and I think it's the same thing here. You know, even though it's not the actual character which Clint Eastwood has played in multiple movies, in some sense it is. I mean, this is yeah. still you know yeah. the grumpy old Clint Eastwood character that you've come to expect. Um, but again, I think that he does a really nice job. You know, it's better suited to some movies than to others, and I think it, it, it goes well with this movie. Yeah, I, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen Gran Torino, but certainly Walt yeah. Kowalski is at the heart of this of this character as well, or they're coming from the same place. Absolutely. Yeah. So and Nick Shank, I believe, also wrote he did. Gran Torino, so it makes sense that that the you see the similarities there, and I think uh, a lot of ha- uh, people have pointed at the similarities. Although ultimately, I think this is probably a little bit more of a more of a sentimental movie, I guess, in the end. Yeah, I think that's certainly right. And yes, Nick Nick Shank has written three movies, two of which he has had the good fortune, I believe, of of Clint Eastwood writing, or sorry, directing and starring in those films, which have certainly helped his cause in those movies, I'd imagine. Yeah, so I think we can go ahead and dive in. We've already started talking about it, but you know, Clint Eastwood here, Earl Stone, this character who's based on the real life Leo Sharp, who was quite literally a ninety year old drug mule uh, for the for the Sinaloa cartel. Um, and what did you think of this this character? You talked about how you think. Clint Eastwood's performance as this character is really strong, but I'm also curious what you think of this this character, this admittedly real life figure to some extent that you know I, I don't have any I didn't know about this person before watching this movie. But what what did you think of this character, the the development over the course of the film, things like that? Yeah, again, I like how it, it subverted my expectations. I mean, I think you do have the one grumpy old man layer, but you also have this other really more sentimental layer, you know, and and you see it in in these scenes with. I mean, in a variety of scenes throughout the movie, whether it's, you know, a scene with, uh, you know, the, this uh, his, the Hispanic guys who uh, become his handlers. He takes them to a barbecue restaurant. Yeah. And it's just a nice I little Julio. scene. Yes, Julio. That is, they, they share a nice little scene together, uh, you know, where he's saying, you know, because cause his handlers are all angry with him, you know, why are you stopping at a restaurant? You know, you're supposed to be delivering the drugs as quickly as possible. And he says, you know, you should just enjoy life more. And Julio comes back and says, well, you know, maybe you en- have enjoyed life a little bit too much, and that's why you're here. And so I like those scenes where, you know, we're really seeing 
the impact that this new path in life is having on Clint Eastwood, and it, you know, it is forcing him to reconsider, you know, what is truly important to him. You know, whether it, is is it his work? Is it you know his work as a horticulturalist, or is it his family? And again, we see it later in the movie when he shares a really nice scene with Bradley Cooper at a, at a Waffle House. Um, where they've, you know, they've run into each other. Of course, at this point, Bradley Cooper doesn't know that Clint Eastwood is the person that he's looking for. Um, and Clint Eastwood is just kind of giving him some advice about, uh, you know, the fact that Bradley Cooper has forgotten his anniversary with his wife and, you know, telling him, you know, you shouldn't screw up your life um, like I did. You know, you, you should always put family first, put family before your work. Um, and, and so, you know, I, re- I really liked uh, that aspect of the character, as well, um, because again, it gives you something to attach to. It gives it gives us something to relate to uh, as the audience, and I think it's natural that you know a man in his position, experiencing this whole new path in his life, uh, is going to reconsider you know what what he considers to be important. I mean, I think I think that there's nothing uh, far fetched, nothing uh, unbelievable about the development that he that he. Uh, undergoes throughout this movie uh, in, in terms of how he eventually comes around, of course, to to realize the importance of family uh, and, and that even if it means he has to end up in prison, um, you know, he, he has gotten his priorities straight and having his family actually let him in um, it is, has been the most fulfilling thing really for him in his life. Yeah, and I think that obviously you have two kind of key plot threads in this movie one of course as i kind of alluded to or i guess the two of which i already alluded to in my intro here and that's of course his job as as you know this this drug mule for the cartel and then also him trying to essentially make amends for all of of his past you know sins for against his family ignoring them for so many years never being there for them etc and i think that this movie just does a really great job of balancing those two things it never gives you i I don't think it, it it doesn't lean too hard in a way that feels forced or contrived into the family drama and i hear what you're saying about almost wanting more of that but i think that it does a nice job of of showing you the part of of like you know yes he's trying to make amends i I should say almost ironically he's trying to make amends for all these past mistakes he made with his family by again kind of leaning in to his work but at the same time he's leaning into his work of course we don't get the full insight into what he did and how he ignored them over the years beyond, you know, of course, missing his daughter's wedding uh, in that one scene towards the beginning of the film. But you don't, he, he's ironically, he's leaning into his work in a new way, but in a way that's not necessarily prioritizing that work over his family. Cause ultimately when he's faced with a decision to choose his, you know, his family or his work, he does choose his family. And, and that's ultimately where I guess that you pay the Pied Piper in terms of, you know, coming full circle and, and having learned your lesson. Yeah. And I think that there's, I agree, and I think that what's also different, and, and again, this is maybe the thing that I wanted more of, was how there's almost a, more of a familial aspect to the actual work in terms of the relationships that he's forming with the guys in the cartel. You know, So the, we have the, these three guys who work mm-hmm. in the first garage that he frequently goes to in the movie, and they kind of you know form this sort of weird uh, camaraderie and you know he's asking the one guy you know how's your nephew doing and you know they're always really happy to see each other um, and it's not not really a place that you expect it to go to but he kind of makes friends with these people and 
you know, again, we see it on a deeper level with with the character of Julio, who you know is the is sort of the right hand man, so to speak, of, of the, the drug boss who's played by Andy Garcia. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, at first he comes off as really hostile and aggressive, but then I think he starts to let his defenses down a little bit. Uh, and, and and Walt, you know, um, Walt, I said I called him Walt. See, there you go, Grant Torino. But Earl. Um, you know, starts to try to connect with him more. You know, we have this scene at their the mansion where Andy Garcia lives, where you know he goes to he goes to Julio and says, "Hey, look, you know, you should get out of this life. Like, uh, you know, th- th- this is uh, this is not not a life. You know, you're a better person than this. You know, you shouldn't be involved with all these people." And 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 uh, Julio just kind of says, "You know, this is my family." Uh, so we see, you know, how he uh, how family begins to become a part of his work as well. And I think that's one of the things which uh, causes him to, you know, again, undergo this change that he does and to really reprioritize his life. And ultimately, you know, Julio kind of betrays him in the end, um, you know, telling him, you know, I'm not your friend, I'm not your amigo. Um, but I think that's what's so interesting about the ending of the movie to me. I think this is, this is kind of what's unspoken, maybe a little bit, is, you know, we have the court the courtroom scene or where Earl eventually decides he's going to plead guilty, but he decides he's going to plead guilty right after his lawyer is going off about, you know, oh, these, these you know, Hispanic thugs kidnapped him and all this stuff and forced him into doing this. And, well, I mean, Earl uh, stands up and says, you know, I, I plead guilty. And I think, you know, what one way you can interpret it, and I think this is certainly a fair interpretation, is that, you know, he realizes that he's got to take responsibility for this. This is no one's fault but his own. And that, you know, he ultimately he was doing this to, to protect his family. He doesn't necessarily um, feel bad about, you know, the, at least the reasoning for why he, he went about doing this. But I think another interpretation of it is, you know, he doesn't he doesn't like the way that his attorney is, is connoting these uh, men that he was men that he was working with because he's come to understand them as. You know, just people like him with families, um, you know, with their own families that they have to provide for. Um, And so I I think that that's, you know, a potentially interesting to the the dimension to to the ending and to this film in general that, again, I wasn't expecting. Yeah, no, honestly, I think, I mean, I'm not saying that you don't think this, but I think it's probably a little bit of both, right? I think that, yeah, yeah, I, I think part of his coming to terms with, the mistakes that he's made in the past is, is owning up to like, look, these are, this is, this is what I did in order to like make things right or start to make things right. And I'm not going to like shy away from that. And then absolutely. I totally agree with, you know, that, I mean, almost kind of third plot thread of this new kind of family that he's developing amongst, you know, the people that he's gotten to know in the cartel and, and standing up for them as well. Right. Obviously it's, it's more of a gesture than anything, as he's not like he's not really going to bat for them, but he is saying like, look, like I wasn't coerced into doing this. These people are people too. They're not thugs. They're I yeah. mean, well, they're not thugs in the in the way that his lawyer was portraying them as thugs. And uh, I I I also really liked that component of the of the film. And, and one thing that I think that it ties in so nicely with the rest of the film and this particular thread is that it's not uh it's not inconsistent with the rest of of the story or Earl's past that he befriends these other people who you know traditionally aren't his aren't his core or his nuclear family so to speak right he worked with yeah no i was just gonna say like it was it came up at at the beginning of the film that you know he he was always on the road he was always befriending other people and and being you know 
basically family to other people and not being family to his actual family back at home. And so it's it's ironic almost that that he by becoming family, quote unquote, with these people, you know, these the, the these members of the drug cartel, he also discovers uh, what how how and why it's important to be a family uh, to his to his nuclear family as well. All right, so I, I think that it's probably a good time to move on from Clint Eastwood, who I think we've probably spent the entirety of our discussion so far talking about, and, and talk about some other cast members. And, you know, we someone who's largely gone unmentioned so far at all is Bradley Cooper, who plays the DEA agent Colin Bates, who is the other side of the coin of this of this movie, right? Like, again, we haven't really mentioned him yet, but he has a significant amount of screen time. He, he's kind of the second half of this movie, so to speak. But what did you think of Bradley Cooper's performance? I mean, you know, I've talked... You know, I'm, I'm on the record as saying Bradley Cooper kind of plays... One role and one role only in all of his movies, though I did like his performance in A Star is Born and certainly thought he was a fantastic director. But what did you think of Bradley Cooper in this one? Yeah, I think a little bit early early on in the movie, he's sleepwalking a little bit through this role. And I think that it's probably nothing to do with him. It's more about, you know, it's a pretty cut and dry standard DEA agent role, uh, you know, federal agent role, at least early in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he does get some really nice scenes that I think he plays very well. You know, I mentioned that Waffle House scene. I think that's one example. I think ultimately, too, when, uh, you know, he catches uh, Earl when, when, you know, Clint Eastwood is finally arrested. And, you know, there's some nice moments between the two of them where he, you know, first when Bradley Cooper realizes who it is you know that he's been hunting uh that it's you know this man who he shared the conversation with and in the waffle house um and i think you know he kind of starts to see himself a little bit in in walt or wow wow, i really keep doing it um (laughs) maybe there's more similarities to Gran Torino than than i'm i feel partially responsible just for bringing up the name at the beginning but i'm not not sure if i should feel guilty yeah but no so he kind of sees himself though i think a little bit in earl and you know, the way that Earl tells him, you know, don't don't let work go above family, which is exactly sort of what Bradley Cooper is doing, right? When he's staking out the hotel, he's not there for his anniversary because he's he's doing work. You know, he really wants to move up the ladder in the DEA and he really wants to make this big bust that his boss, played by Lawrence Fishburne, which I don't really know why Lawrence Fishburne was needed for that role, but that's probably another matter. But, um, <laughs> but so I think that, Ultimately, the character turns out to be something a lot more than what I think I thought it was going to be for most of the movie. And I think that Bradley Cooper deserves credit for that. Um, I think, you know, he, he sh- the, the, the strong scenes for him are the ones that he shares with Clint Eastwood. And I think that the two of them play off each other very nicely. Yeah, I think that I don't necessarily think I don't necessarily know if this is a criticism or not, but you're right. Like he's not really given much to do, you know, especially for the first two thirds of this movie. Like you said, very cut and dry role. I mean, honestly, it doesn't really matter what you think of Bradley Cooper's acting quality. There just really isn't much for him to do. And part of that is, of course, it's probably because it's a movie about Leo Sharp, not not uh, and you know Leo Sharp by way of Earl Stone, and not about uh, Jeff Moore, who is the real life version of Colin Bates. Here and, and you know also Clint Eastwood happens to be playing <laughs> Earl Stone and is also directing the film and makes the film about him and and I did think that the underdevelopment of Bradley Cooper's character here was one of the weaker points of the movie. Obviously, there are a few moments towards the latter half which you've already talked about uh, that uh, redeem that a little bit and take and step that up a little bit. That being said, it, it feels like a very uh, stereotypical character. And I'm not 100 percent sure that I even loved the idea of you know, this DEA agent 
using a criminal, you know, a, a drug running criminal as as a mirror to his own life. It not that it's not authentic or or inaccurate in any way, just that like it feels almost eye rolly, if that makes sense. Where it's like, oh yeah, of course, like there you can learn something from anyone. Kind of theme of of a movie, which yeah. which again, there there are smarter ways than others to to. I guess you know, slam home that message, and and towards the end, it gets a little bit better. That Waffle House scene is, is of course one that sticks out in my mind. That that being said, it, it felt a little bit under undercooked. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that necessarily, but uh, Bradley Cooper ultimately does you know deliver the goods in in the few scenes where he's given the opportunity to, and so I, I definitely can't complain too much about Bradley Cooper. Yeah, I mean, I think again, you know, it's it's not a it's not a new theme. I certainly agree with you there, and they probably don't develop it, you know, to the full extent that they could have. But I think it at least gives Bradley Cooper something to do in the latter stages of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know it deserves some credit for that. But I mean, I, I yeah. agree with most of what you're saying. No, I think that's fair. Uh, the, and then there's also some other characters in this movie, of course, the supporting cast, which, yeah, I mentioned a few of them at the outset, but includes, to, you know, the people that you've mentioned, Lawrence Fishburne is the special agent in charge uh, of Bradley Cooper. You also have Michael Pena, who hasn't we haven't mentioned yet, who is yeah. the, side, the kind of the partner of, of Bradley Cooper's Colin Bates. And then Andy Garcia, who plays Latone, who's the cartel boss. And then, of course, you have Earl's family, which is played by Diane Wiest, or Weist, I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce it. Wiest, yeah. Wiest, got it. Uh, who's Earl's ex-wife. Uh, Allison Eastwood, or Eastwood's daughter, who plays Earl's estranged daughter. And, and Thaisa Farmiga, who's Jenny, Earl's granddaughter. You also have Julio, who is played by Ignacio Cerriccio, who's, you know, um, who's Earl's handler from the cartel. And then you know, the list kind of goes on a little bit further. But that's that's the vast majority of the characters there. Or are there any particular performances that stuck out? Of, of course, we could kind of talk about these in little groups, right? You have Eastwood's family, or sorry, Earl's family. You have the DEA agents, and then you also have the cartel. I don't know if any particular performances stuck out to you. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me... Uh, this is probably where the movie loses some points to me with the supporting cast because I think most of these characters are, are pretty one-dimensional. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't understand why, like Michael Pena, Lawrence Fishburne. I mean, these are completely throwaway roles that they're given. Uh, I mean, there, there's really yeah. nothing at all for these very capable, very established actors to do. So it kind of just seemed like they were in there because of you know their reputation as actors more than what mm-hmm. they could actually bring to this role which is ironic uh, yeah. because they don't even as they're with their reputation like these actors are not putting you know butts in seats essentially right yeah. um yeah yeah I mean, which I, is like, ironic I didn't, know, I didn't even know they were in this movie so well it's just it's just weird because like if you go see this movie you're going you're going to see it because clint eastwood not because clint lawrence eastwood, fishburne yeah. or michael pena yeah i don't know probably why the the target demographic in my theater when I saw this was like 65 and older. But anyway, um, yeah, but I think the same goes for the, the actors who played the family members. Like, I mean, I do think that there's, again, some, some touching scenes between McLean Eastwood and Diane Weiss towards the end of the movie. But I think that we don't, th- th- there's not much depth to her character really. And her character is, is really just there to, provide an example of how Clint Eastwood has sort of redeemed himself, you know, in this later stage of his life um, mm. by making good with his ex-wife. Yeah. Um, who, I mean, you have to say, she comes around pretty quickly. Like, well, yeah, you know, that, we have a, I was going to talk about movie, that later. Yeah. She won't, e- she won't even dance with him at the granddaughter's wedding. But, you know, once he starts shelling out money for like the VFW, VFW and coming to the cosmetology graduation, she's, she's kind of back on board. But, 
again, I mean, I, I'm not going to pick the logical holes too much because I think ultimately it works for what the movie is trying to say. Um, but I, I, w- I would have liked to see, you know, these all, all these actors, you know, who are very, very capable, again, very established. I would have liked to see them given a little more to do. Um, and so I think that's maybe one area where the movie uh, is flawed to me. Yeah, no, I agree. I was going to maybe bring this up more when we talked about the plot, but there are you know, more than one, I'd say maybe two or three instances where I'm like, well, I'm not sure that's totally believable. That being said, this is based on a true story, which, you know, again, we've said this time and time again, that so- sometimes reality isn't as nicely put together as you'd like it to be, so it is what it is. But that being said, if we're, if we're focusing on the supporting cast here, I, the one performance that stuck out to me of these different uh, roles, because I agree that some of these are like just completely throwaway uh, characters, and, and, you know, by, by and large... You have to. You, there's not. There's not much you can do about it for Lawrence Fishburne or Michael Pena or even you know Allison Eastwood for that matter. I, but I think that Ignas, Ignacio Sorichio really does sure. stand out in terms of the supporting uh, performances, and I think that's not because he's a better actor or, uh, than some of these other people that we're talking about, but simply because his character is written much more interestingly than any of the other characters right. are. And, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on him, but I did want to note him before we moved on. Well, no, I agree. I mean, I think you know. It, that goes along with what I've been saying about how I really like this dimension of the movie. Yeah. Um, his relationship, Earl's relationships with the actual people in the cartel. I think that, you know, all of the actors who play them do a good job. And if I did have to point to someone in the supporting cast who I think, uh, you know, does, uh, elevate the material, it's, it would be Ignacio Sorincio again, though. I think it, it's probably because he has a more interesting character. Yeah. Fair enough. All right, so, like, you know, uh, we were kind of just talking about it already, but moving on to the plot, there are instances, of course, that, you, know, you mentioned one where Diane Weiss' character, you know, Earl's ex-wife, comes around quickly to when Earl, you know, comes to her house when she's sick and, and asks for forgiveness. Uh, you know, again, might be believable given the fact that she, you know, she's on her deathbed quite literally, and, right. and you know, everyone, life's a little bit different in terms of perspective you take at that point in time. But there are other moments in the film as well that I would point to that weren't quite as believable, and one of them is, of course, how he comes about getting this job in the first place. Yes. I, I think that this rando at uh, his granddaughter's bridal shower, I assume is what it was, comes up to him, he's like, yeah. you seem like a good driver, want to run dr-? I mean, doesn't say this, right, that's not the lines in the movie, but is essentially just offering this random person a business card to ferry drugs. He doesn't even say that's what it is, but it's just like a ridiculous scenario in my mind. Like one of the most absurd plot developments that I've seen this year. Yeah, I agree. I would, I would be interested to know how authentic that is to the real story about, you know, how did he actually get involved with this? But yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, a little far-fetched to say, oh, he just, he sees this old white guy, old angry white guy at a party and says, oh, here we go. This is, you know, this is who we need uh, to run drugs for me. Um, it, it was definitely a stretch, especially because, you know, the character doesn't even come up at all in the rest of the movie. Yeah, um, literally never seen and again. Think, and, and, and also, you know, maybe early on in like some of his first drug runs, the fact that he comes around, I mean, he take he takes to it pretty quickly. Like, he, he doesn't seem to have a, a lot of, you know, difficulty or a lot of questions about what exactly it is that he's doing. You know, he doesn't look in the bag of what's actually in the bag for a while, mm-hmm. um, which maybe is, is a little bit of a logical leap to think, you know, that he's not going to be at least a little bit curious or that he's not going to be at least a little bit sketched out at the beginning, you know, that he's driving some mysterious package across, you know, the border and he or he has to 
leave his keys in the glove compartment for someone to come, you know, put the drugs in his car. I mean, to, or to put the money in his car. Um, maybe, you know, there are some places where it's not as believable. Sure. Um, but you know, I think that's to be expected with a movie like this. Yeah, I mean, def- definitely, but it does. It, but that it, doesn't excuse it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was gonna say. It's like it's also just it doesn't change the fact that it's an incredibly eyebrow raising experience to, yes. to see these developments on screen. But there are also portions of the plot that I, I quite liked, and I think that we've already talked about some of those. Especially, you know, we mentioned the Waffle House scene with that development. Where you have that scene between. Bradley Cooper's character and Clint Eastwood's, and then there are some scenes, particularly, again, you've mentioned these already, the ones between Clint Eastwood and, and members of the cartel when he's visiting them in Mexico, and you, you have these actually quite nice scenes between him and Julio, and as, as well as a couple other moments of that as well. It, the later runs when he he's being handled more, more closely by Julio and that other cartel member, you get some good scenes, but is there any others that come to mind before we start wrapping things up? I think I've probably mentioned all of the, the standout ones for me in terms of, you know, the that really get at that other dimension to the story that, that I was talking about. But yeah, I mean, I think I think the plot holds up fairly well. Yeah. Well, so last thing before we do in our official wrap-up phase, I do want to give you a moment to kind of put this on the spectrum of Clint Eastwood, you know, acting, directing roles. Where, where do you kind of see this fall? You mentioned that you quite liked it and it, and it surprised you in a positive way does does this rank up there with movies like Gran Torino or is, or is it somewhere in the middle it's been so long since I've seen Gran Torino that I mean I think I probably did enjoy it a little bit more than Gran Torino but again I would probably need a, to revisit Gran Torino certainly this movie doesn't come close to matching something like Unforgiven I mean I think that will always be Eastwood's greatest mm-hmm. um, from a directorial and probably from an acting standpoint as well um, but I mean I think you know, I say this is his best movie for years. The last one that I can think of that that matches this one is is Changeling, which with Angelina Jolie, which I think is a really powerful, underrated movie that I've only seen one time because it is such a hard watch. I mean, it it is it is a very extremely well done movie, extremely uh, interesting story, great performance by Jolie, but it's just such a hard movie to watch that I've not had the chance to watch it again. But uh, I think for me, this this movie belongs in the it would in the upper tier of Eastwood movies, at least that I that I've seen. Though of course not as high as something like Unforgiven. Um, but yeah, you know, really solid overall. Interesting. Changeling came out of the same year as Gran Torino, if I'm not mistaken. So okay, 2008. Uh, yeah, 2008, and then movie release date. Yeah, exactly. But so no no mention of Million Dollar Baby. I'm surprised. Uh, you know, I always forget that one. Yeah, this one doesn't match Million Dollar Baby as well. I mean, I, that's that's up there with with Unforgiven for me. I mean, that's that's an amazing movie. Yeah, well, there you go. Still, so you know, somewhere in the in the upper upper mid tier for you is what it sounds yes. like. Yes. All right. Well, Scott, let's learn a wrap up phase here. What's your favorite scene from The Mule? I think I'm gonna go with the Waffle House scene between Clint Eastwood and Bradley Cooper. I think. You know, I talked about some of the reasons why I liked it. You know, the conversation that they have, um, but also I think one part of the of the scene which I haven't mentioned is like after Clint Eastwood walks out of the Waffle House, there's a really nice moment of suspense where he's walking back to his truck and you hear Bradley Cooper say, uh, "Excuse me, sir," and you want and Clint Eastwood kind of stops like, "Oh crap!" as he figured something out, and he, but then he turns around only to find that. Um, you know that that Bradley Cooper had just picked up his coffee thermos that Clint Eastwood left behind and, and was returning it to him. So it's a really nice moment of suspense that like punctuates the scene, which otherwise you think, oh, like 
you know, this is this is a nice scene between these two guys, but this sort of brings it back to reality when you get this moment of suspense about, oh, well, you know, there can't these guys can't be friends. I mean, you know, Bradley Cooper is, is hunting him, and, and they're still that's still the reality of the situation. So I like that scene a lot. Yeah, now that I think that'd be the scene that I would point to as well. Though there are there are a couple scenes early on. You know, I really love the the scene of him. You know, at the horticultural. Sh- I'm kidding. Uh, I think that no, the Waffle House scene by far is 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 kind of that scene that I think anyone would point to and be like, this is a well acted scene, good performance. Yeah. It's the it's the time for both men to shine, kind of in the film, and the, and and that's that's where it's at. Yeah. All right, let's put a score on this one. What do you think? Seven point four. Very very solid okay. and enjoyable movie. Again, I love being surprised uh, by a movie, and I mean, I won't say that this movie floored me. Um, I think the score reflects the fact that it did not floor me, um, but a lot better than I was expecting. Definitely one of the most surprisingly good movies of this year, uh, which is not meant to be the backhanded compliment that it probably sounds like. <laughs> uh, but it's it's a sol- very solid piece of work overall. And if you're intrigued at all by the story, if you like Clint Eastwood's films, definitely recommend. Well, Scott, I think that for this for the second episode in a row, we're going to get the identical scores on this All one because right. I'm I'm giving it a seven point four as well. You know, the only other thing that I'd add that you know brings me down a little bit is that as 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 nice as kind of the ending is from the familial standpoint for Clint uh, Clint Eastwood's character Earl Stone when he, when he you know that final court scene, I do think one of the things that they just leave totally hanging and, and I understand why they did and and maybe that's just that's just again just the reality of a true to life story, but they leave the whole plot thread of the cartel completely yeah, hanging and that is true. there was a pretty momentous scene i believe when you have his new handlers basically choose to not kill uh earl right you know when they had they could have i mean it was literally their choice to kill him or not and the fact that they let him go and he ultimately doesn't deliver the drugs i think there's uh, serious question marks around how that develops from there and, and what becomes a, very, of, of those members annoying. which i was very disappointed that it didn't address yeah. and, and again i understand you know that that could just be a shrug your shoulders we don't know uh, kind of thing, right? But it, it doesn't leave me satisfied. Make something up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure they made enough things up about this movie that, yeah, that of they could have. So why not just make it up? Yeah. Exactly, and you know, even if it literally just been a shot of you know them being buried in the ground, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think that <laughs> would have naturally probably that's probably actually what happened. I yeah, mean. exactly. But th- that did leave the plot hanging there, and, and that's something that yeah. I, d- I didn't like uh, about the ending of the movie. But that 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 kind of leads me down the path again to to come out a little bit lower than some other movies that sure. we've seen. So 7.4. 7. All right. I think that should just about wrap up our discussion of The Mule. When we return, we'll be discussing Alfonso Cuaron's follow-up to 2013's Gravity, a film five years in the making, the Spanish-language black-and-white film Roma. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, our second movie today is the Netflix-distributed black-and-white drama slash maybe even magnum opus, Roma. This Alfonso Cuaron written, directed, produced, edited, and photographed film follows one year in the life of an upper-middle-class household set in 1970 and 1971 in the Colonia Roma neighborhood of Mexico City. Primarily telling the story of two women, Sofia, the mother of this household, played by Marina de Tavira, and one of her maids, Cleo, played by Yalitza Aparicio. Roma intertwines the struggles that Cleo and Sophia face with the mundane day-to-day happenings in Cleo's life, and in doing so, explores themes of love, duty, and overcoming. 
With that as our setup, Scott, I have several questions to get our discussion started. First, is this Alfonso Cuaron's greatest work? Second, will Roma be Netflix's breakthrough into serious awards considerations at the Oscars? And Scott, finally, do you agree with some film critics who are saying that Roma might be one of the greatest films of all time? Well, man, here's what I will say uh, before I you know, answer those questions. I think that there's so much to say about this movie. There's yeah. so much that, that yeah. comes into my head. I mean, that watching this movie is an overwhelming experience for all of the senses, for your emotions, and I mean that in the best possible way. I mean, looking at your, you know, your questions that you asked, I absolutely think this is the best film Alfonso Cuaron has made. Um, you know, he's made some very good movies with Children of Men. You think about the Harry Potter movie that he made, Prisoner of Azkaban. You know, personally, I'm not someone who is the biggest fan of Gravity, but I think from a visual standpoint, it's an astonishing movie. Um, but I think. You know the fact that, the fact that this is such a personal uh, project for uh, Alfonso Cuarón comes through in every single frame of this movie. I mean, this is clearly a labor of love for him, and it shows with the meticulous detail that he he puts in every single shot of this movie. Um, you know, having only watched it one time, it's hard to say you know whether I can I can call it one of the greatest films of all time yet. Although as you know. You, as you said, I mean, Claudia Puig is one person who I've heard, um, the head of the L.A. Film Critics Association, I believe she has said it's one of the best films she's ever seen. Um, and I think that, you know, in the years to come, it has the potential to that to be that just because of what it accomplishes visually and from a storytelling perspective. And so for that reason, I hope to answer your second question. I really hope that this movie, uh, you know, does mark Netflix's. Uh, transition to a serious awards contender because there's really no reason why this movie should not be nominated for everything um in, unless the academy you know it just can't get over their you know their hatred for uh, for netflix or their you know their frustration with the fact that that netflix you know is starting to to enter the film realm um everything about it um screams oscar nomination but not in a obvious or you know cash grabby way yeah absolutely. Uh, and i think i think you know as we talked we talked about this the other day when we were talking about this movie i think that a lot of people probably aren't going to watch this movie because well i mean hey you describe it it's a black and white spanish language movie about you know a domestic life in mexico city in you know the 20th century like it doesn't sound like this stuff of you know thrilling blockbuster uh, you know, material that, that people are just going to be rushing out to see. And I think people are going to say, oh, well, you know, this is just some arty movie that is, you know, some art house movie that's just way over my head. I'll never be able to understand it. And I, I'm telling you right now, that is absolutely false because personally, I am someone who will not go for those types of movies at all either. I mean, if I, if I get the sense that a movie is, is just being overly pretentious and just trying to be deliberately art house, um, then it, it immediately shuts me out. And that's not at all what this movie is trying to do. Um, it's not just a visual spectacle, although, I mean, the visual spectacle is incredible. I mean, it, this is a gorgeous movie, and I'm sure in the course of our conversation we'll talk about many of the you know stunning shots and, and, and frames that come up in this movie. Mm -hmm. But also from a storytelling perspective, it tells such a compelling story to go along with the, you know, the visuals uh, it, it, the visuals and the storytelling supplement each other really well. And, you know, it's not a story that, that 
where there's like a whole lot of you know specific plot beats it kind of just coasts along it's one of those movies like that where it doesn't feel like a lot is happening but in reality everything is happening in the lives of these characters and so in, in that sense it reminds me honestly of many of the movies of my favorite director uh, Richard Linklater who you know with movies like Dazed and Confused the before trilogy Boyhood you know he 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 focuses on these sort of uh, you know not very densely plotted movies that sort of coast along telling the story of someone's life and in, in these in the little moments that make up a period of someone's life uh, and I think that's what this movie is doing and I think that in that because, because it does that it really sneaks up on you and you know when the final climactic scenes come which are certainly more dramatic um, I think you'll be surprised about how emotionally invested you are without you know even realizing that that you are so emotionally invested because that is really just the creeping power of this movie um, and I think you know to, to touch briefly on the acting, although we'll get into it, I mean, it's a, a, astonishing, like, the naturalistic performances that he gets. I mean, mainly because no one in this movie, with the exception of Marina de Tavira, who plays the mother and is excellent, I think, um, has ever acted before. And that includes Yelitsa Aparicio, who plays Cleo. I mean, she actually... Alfonso Cuaron tells a story about how when he got her to be in this movie, like when he first was pitching the movie to her saying, Hey, I want you to be in the movie. She thought it was some sort of human trafficking operation and like, you know, was not inclined to be a part of it. Um, and eventually decided to, to go on with Alfonso Cuaron when she basically said to him, well, I have nothing else better to do. Um, and, and so from there she, she, you know, she got her role cast in this movie. And I think it really, adds to i mean i i I can't imagine having this movie with you know seasoned actors because it i think that would really take out of what the movie is going for you know which is the idea that you're just watching someone's life unfold unfold in front of you and the fact that none of these people are are actors and you know there's no you know polish per se to their performance although all of the performances are outstanding um that really adds to the naturalistic, yeah. um, you know, realistic feel that Alfonso Cuaron is really going, you know, for in this movie. And I mean, there's much more that I could say, and that you know, we'll, we'll probably get into in this discussion. But it's really just a spectacular film, and that everyone should see it. It is a film that everyone can see and enjoy. Um, it's not some highbrow, you know, pretentious film that only you know highfalutin film critics are gonna be able to appreciate yeah and i couldn't i mean i really honestly just could not agree more i think that this i went into this movie you know like like you said about yourself and how you approach you know the highbrow elitist kind of uh artsy artsy movies i am the same way i i went into this movie wondering whether that that was exactly what this movie was and <coughs> literally within five minutes you're like no this that's not what this movie is at all and to your point about that, that acting, I think that if you're going to point to one department in which this film's not going to get any credit, it's probably going to be the acting department. But honestly, their their lack of acting um, experience and their lack of – this almost sounds derogatory and I don't mean it this way, but their, their lack of acting chops yeah. almost amplifies everything else in the movie, right? It does it, amplify, it, it's yeah. their It's the, the naturalist – or the naturalism of their performance, which is going to ultimately not – rendered this a movie that's going to get many acting nominations i don't think yeah. it's going to get any acting nominations to be really to be very clear um it, it allows for the movie to be what it is and that's an entirely uh recognizable movie and you know appreciable movie from a perspective of 
like you said, anyone can go see this because you're not going to like when you look at this movie on the screen, you're not going to see anything that catches your eye and makes you think, "Wow, this movie is a movie of actors," or "This is a, this is a Hollywood movie," right? Because it, it is the exact opposite. This movie is by far, you know, the movie that I think of this year is the one that, like you said already, literally every person can see and relate to, right? It doesn't it doesn't matter, you know. What your I really feel this strongly. I don't think it matters at all what your background is. You watch this movie, you'll follow along the subtitles. If if you if you don't understand Spanish, like you know I I don't, so I, I was following along with the subtitles. And what you're left with is something that's truly amazing. In that it, it and I said this to you off air, you know, last time when we were recording, when we were just talking about this movie after we'd both seen it, is that this this movie has absolutely no right to be interesting whatsoever. You know, th- th- this is a yeah. movie of in- in completely mundane events going on in, you know, the span of a year in this one maid's life. And it, it, yes, okay, there are there are certain story beats, like you said, that kind of string together. And it, it, they're not, they, I think you probably could segment this movie into different uh, acts, so to speak, of like different events happening. But they stream together so seamlessly and so naturally that you don't even feel that, right? It, it's almost, it almost takes you out of it when you, uh, intuit how much time has passed between scenes almost because you're like oh wow I didn't even realize that amount of time had passed or like oh it, it's no longer Christmas it, it's clearly like several weeks later but you don't even notice because everything's streamed together so seamlessly and I think that because of that you know you, you can really this movie does have a longer runtime. It, it's two hours 15 minutes uh, and, it, and it takes every minute of it but it doesn't feel like it, it but it doesn't feel like it because like I said it's, it's strung together so seamlessly the acting is so natural there's never a moment in the in the film where you go all right yeah I've seen enough of this to, at least to me like I never had this moment where all right I've seen enough of this I don't need to see anymore because I think every scene is exactly to your point and, and kind of tying this back in with Alfonso Cuaron you know his entire soul is put into this movie and every shot. And, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical about the use of black and white films. And again, it, it kind of lends me to suspect that it might be one of those artsy kind of movies that, that you kind of associate these days right. with black and white films. But this is, this is the, the film where it being shot in black and white or ultimately shown in black and white is something that amplifies everything that this movie is trying to capture. It amplifies the mundane it amplifies certain shots that otherwise wouldn't be as striking in full color. And there are several scenes in particular that I'm sure that we'll talk about where throughout this movie, you know, you look at these, these shots, these often, you know, whether it's a panning shot or, uh, you know, a still shot because it uses both to great effect throughout the film. And you're like, wow, this shot is only gorgeous and only as beautiful as it is because it's in black and white. Yeah, and it makes the movie feel timeless too. I mean, mm-hmm. which which I think is important because even though you know we know what the time period yeah. is of this movie, I mean, it's clear when it's set. It could also, I th- I feel like, be set in any time period. That's I mean, such a nothing, good point. Yeah, there's nothing about what happens in this movie um, that you know is necessarily feels dated or, or obsolete. Like you know, the themes are somehow not as fresh because they're sixty years older. You know, whenever the movie takes place. Um, I mean, it, 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 the film 
like I said, it could exist in any time period. And I think the black and white is important to convey that because, you know, it, it makes it feel timeless. And I think that that's, again, that's important for a movie that is trying to tell a story about people's lives. Yeah. And, and, you know, on that note, why don't we just go ahead and talk about it? Let's talk about the visuals of this movie. Let's talk about the cinematography, which I kind of noted in our lead in that it's done by Alfonso Cuaron, which is, you know, I don't know how many directors shoot the photography for their for their films, but, you know, he does it here and he does it beautifully. Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely brilliant, and I think that one thing which is is so brilliant about it is the visuals, in some sense, aren't telling the story, right? Absolutely, hundred percent. It's, not, 100% it's agree. not just the the dialogue or you know even the acting of the characters. It's the actual shots which are telling the story. Like you know, to give some examples, there's a scene where Marina de Tavira's character, the mother, uh, you know, she has. She basically she's upset because her husband has has gotten has divorced her you know has implied that he's going to divorce her and she goes she takes his car out and you know we don't see this obviously but she wrecks his car all up. well we see part of it but we don't see the whole all of what transpires but she wrecks his car up because this car is kind of you know the symbol of his role as the the king in this family so to speak you know we see a scene early in the movie where. Um, you know, he comes home and all we see in the scene is the car pulling up. You know, we see like the lower part of the car. You know, you can tell it's a nice car pulling up. And then, you know, we hear the children saying, dad, dad, you're home. You know, they're there waiting for him to come home. So the car is really the symbol of like his, you know, authority in the family that, you know, the way that, that the children loves him. And when he betrays the mother, so to speak, um, you know, she responds by, wrecking his beloved car by destroying this symbol uh you know of his role in the in the family and, and later on just buying a new car altogether but i think that you know the movie doesn't spell that out for you right like you have to you have to piece that together from the visuals and i and i love that i mean i you know i i, I wish that more movies would you know take the audience as intelligent beings you know right like at, rely on their perception of what's going on to tell the story rather than having to spell every single thing out for us here. And, you know, the visuals in that scene are so beautiful uh, in, in telling the story. Another scene I think is, you know, the scene in, a mo- in the movie theater, which might be one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's also, you know, a heartbreaking scene, but a really wonderful scene where uh, Cleo has gone to the movies with, you know, the father of her child and, and she tells Fermin, him, yeah. you know, yeah, for me, and tells him, I think that, I might be pregnant, you know, I'm, I'm late for my period. And he, you know, responds to her saying like, oh, you know, well, isn't that a good thing? Um, and and she says, well, yeah, of course it is. And that, so in the scene, you know, what we get the camera's position behind them, right? So it's behind their row in the movie theater. We're looking at them and we're seeing in the background, we're seeing all of the other people, uh, we, you know, which gives us the sense that, you know, this is just one little story. Uh, that's going on in you know, a much greater context. And we also see the movie, which is like this war movie. Um, and it kind of symbolizes, you know, the the turmoil that is going on in Cleo's own life. And eventually, you know, he says, I'm going to the bathroom. Um, I'll be right back. And I, it's a wonderful performance by Yulitsa Aparicio in this scene in particular because, you know, she can tell, like, she's, she's telling him, like, hey, you know, stay here. The movie's almost over. She knows that something is not right in the way that he's responded. But he says, no, I'll be right back. And gets up, goes to the bathroom. And then, you know, the movie ends. People are filing out of the theater. He's still not back. And I think, you know, one of the saddest moments in the entire movie is just 
she stands up from her seat like and gets ready to leave because she knows that he's not coming back and that's probably the last time he'll ever see her she'll ever see him um and it's just beautiful the, the way that the whole scene is staged and the way that the visuals and the dialogue and the acting work together in tandem yeah i mean there's you could go through the movie shot by shot and it's say an this is of riches, yeah. this is an example of how this photographer the cinematography <laughs> is fantastic you know some of the scenes that stick out in my mind one of which i want to save you know for the end for when we discuss the plot and also we wrap up wrap things up because it is my favorite uh, scene and shot from the movie but there's also another one earlier on in the movie where you have the two boys uh younger boys i should say uh playing on the rooftop and you have i don't know if it's i can't remember if it's cleo or adela who is the one up there folding or doing laundry but you know you have the the younger boy who's gets frustrated with his older brother who isn't really uh playing along in a fair game so to speak and right. kind of making him feel bad and you have this shot where he the 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 younger boy lays down on I'm not even sure what it is some sort of air vent or or a large block essentially on the roof and you have uh, Cleo or Adela come over and kind of lay head to head with him facing the other direction and it's a it's a gorgeous shot again it's not necessarily telling you or I shouldn't say that it's it, there isn't this the story itself there's not many dialogue lines in that moment where you see them sitting together that he, he does go like why are you doing this like why are you lying here with me but you can see and you get so much more out of just the shot of these two people separated by class by gender uh by age so many different things and you know for different reasons feeling almost uh, you know similar ways and, and connecting in this really visceral way that again i don't think it would be as powerful if it were in full color yeah, and I mean, one more example before we move on. I think, you know, this is probably the standout scene from the movie, although there are so many. You know, there's this scene in the ocean at the end, right? Well, that, that's and, the one I was going to talk about, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you can go for it if you want, but... No, I mean, we, we talked about this off-air again last time, and this is my favorite scene in the movie. I'll just go ahead and say that, and my favorite shot in the movie by far. But you have this scene at the end of the movie where they're at the beach on this vacation, kind of a vacation... So it's eventually told that they're on this vacation because it was a way to get them all out of the house so that their father, Antonio, could come and take all of his belongings and leave the house, essentially. And as this kind of final scene at the beach, you have Sophia and the oldest brother, whose name I don't remember, is it? Um, nah, it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't remember it. It's not. It's not Pepe. I think he's. Yeah, the Pepe's the youngest. Right? Yeah. It's either okay. it's either Paco or Tonio. I can't remember. Right. Yeah. Um, they're the other two boys. I just can't remember who it is. Uh, but the, you know, the oldest brother and Sophia have left to either pack the car or, or do something. I'm not 100 percent sure. And Cleo is left to watch over the two, the uh, the younger brother. Uh, or sorry, yeah, is it is it Pepe and Sophie, who's the daughter and the youngest boy, and um, and also the middle brother as well, who runs up and tells Cleo that, oh, you know, they've gone too far out, and the I think the, the, the waves got them. And so you have Cleo, who can't swim. It's already been, you know, kind of talked about how she doesn't want to get in the water because she can't swim. Wades out and saves these uh, the, the two children, Sophie and Pepe, and... Actually, I'm not sure if it's Pepe now. I'm not. It's Sophie and one of the one of the boys. And throughout it's, this, it's not. It's not Pepe. It's yeah. not Pepe. Pepe's the one who runs because to the she's beach. Back, and, Bill, she's back with him underneath a dock or whatever. That's right. That's right. So yeah, yeah it's 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 Sophie and one of the older one. Yeah. I think the middle brother. And yeah. you know she wades out and and to to rescue them even though she can't swim. 
And all the while this scene, it's this shot where it's the camera is not swiveling. It's moving along into the right. water with Sophie at the same elevation watching or sorry not Sophie I apologize Cleo who it, it's it's as she tries to save the two children and it, it follows her out into the ocean and it follows her back out once she is able to save them and it follows her back as she gets back to the shore and ultimately uh, rests at ground level as you see this massive familial embrace of the whole family at this point and and when I was in the theater Scott I mentioned this to you I was absolutely stunned how they were able to shoot this because in, in theory, the water should be kind of overtaking the camera at certain points, and, and the wave should be kind of lapping at the camera lens. But you don't get that, and it stays steady the entire time. And it, it, you told me that it has a little, little bit of background here, that they built a pier to make this shot possible. Yeah. Um, and to me, it was just it was absolutely stunning scene. Amazing cinematography work, and again, kind of the, the cherry on top at the end is, is this ground-level camera shot of this entire family kind of piling on top of Cleo, who, you know, not only has just saved these these two children's lives, but also is is overcoming her own struggles that have been ongoing throughout the entire movie, which we're going to talk about a little bit more when we talk about the plot, but it's a, one of the most powerful moments that I've had in the theater this year. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, just to, to touch more on that scene, like, I think it, uh, right, as you perfectly described, you know, the, the camera moving just very sort of calmly, serenely along with Cleo as she's going out into the ocean, like, it, it's for us as the audience members, it's, it's tearing us up because, you know, you, you want to know what is going on. Like, are they drowning out there? Like, yep. you know, you can only, you only know what's going on from what you can hear. Um, but you know, again, that's mirroring what Cleo, that's mirroring Cleo's, you know, progression because she can only move as fast as, you know, the water is going as she can move in the water. She can only get there as fast as she can, just as, you know, we can only get there through the camera, you know, as fast as Cleo is moving. Um, so it, you know, again, it's the, just these really subtle things, which, um, are just so next level in this movie. All right. So moving on to the cast, we've talked a little bit about them kind of in tandem with the cinematography and how they've played a role in it, but let's give them a little bit more focus here. What did you think of the cast? There's a ton of people in this cast that I haven't mentioned, none of which anyone will have ever heard of before, but what, what did you think of this kind of collective ensemble performance? Yeah, I mean, just again to to reiterate, I think that you know the lack of experience. You know, of course, Marina de Tavira does have experience. Does, is that true? Does like, I I never I didn't know yeah. that. Um, what no, else has she that's done? What, that's what I read. I, I there's nothing that I've seen. I don't think, but she, okay. she was the one person who had acting experience. But yeah. I don't think that that in any way shows her. You know, I mean, again, you didn't you didn't know, so it doesn't take away from the nationalistic feel that this movie is going for. And I think that all of the actors succeed in in conveying that, and again, conveying the sense that you're just watching someone's real life unfold in front of you. And even you know those subtle moments, like when Yelitsa Aparicio stands up in the theater. These may not even be moments which the actors are consciously consciously thinking about their significance in the movie, um, you know, or maybe even that they were, you know, told to do at this particular time. But they convey so much, um, you know, in the context of these characters' lives. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that all these again, I, I mentioned this already, and so I'm just basically echoing what I've already said. But the naturalistic performances that you get up and down this cast list makes it all amplifies every theme this movie is trying to hit and and it's because you don't recognize any faces it's because uh you're not getting acted like you know enacted performances so to speak you're getting 
you know, real life stuff. They're, I mean, I imagine they're pretty much all doing whatever Alfonso Cuaron tells them to do, and they're doing it in their own natural way that, you know, it's not forced. You, you could never mistake it for actors trying to, to act out a scene, I think, and that's, that's, the, that's the amazing part of it to me. Cool. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the acting. I'm sure it's going to continue to come up as we kind of broach the next section. And that's the plot, right? You got, again, you know, you mentioned at the at the outset here that this is the kind of movie that strings along and, and, and you know, coasts along, I think is actually the phrase that you used as it, as it carries out. But that being said, I think there are kind of distinguishable uh, events, acts, so to speak, in this movie. You, you, you know, you have these opening sequences of Cleo and Adela when they're cleaning the house and then obviously transitions into them with their boyfriends, which then transitions into doctors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about the plot with you. Yeah. I mean, I think it, you know, again, it, it moves along in a plotless sort of way, but there are, again, there are these, you know, key scenes, as you mentioned, I mean, you know, the obviously one scene, which we haven't talked about, which really is the, one of the most heartbreaking scenes you'll ever see in a movie when she has her child and, you know, has to watch, uh, the child die right there as she's laying on the table. Um, Mm -hmm. literally having just birthed the child. Um, like honestly it was, it was, it, it rips your heart out for sure. Um, so, you know, there are those, those huge moments in the plot, which, uh, impact the, the characters obviously i think ultimately this movie is is about sort of how domestic life in its own way is i guess sort of a miraculous thing right we have this we, we have ultimately we have what is a miraculous act which is cleo you know saving the, the children from drowning even after saying you know she can't swim you know it, that that's one thing which i think kind of goes understated in the scene you know she says she can't swim then she wades out into the ocean and like is able to save them it's i mean it really is it's like a miracle um there's really no no, no way to explain what exactly goes on in the scene and you know i think that's that's ultimately you know what this movie is about how cleo finds her own family in these people um you know, when she is unable to have a family of her own, when, you know, she uh, is deserted by Fermin, when she loses her child. You know, she says at the end of the movie, when she's sitting there on the beach, you know, she says, I didn't want the child to live, um, which, you know, almost implies that she knows, like, what what she knows that the state, what the state of the world is and that she is best off um you know, remaining with these people who have become her family in the setting that is, you know, something we haven't really touched on is the fact that it's a very politically tumultuous setting. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with that line, that last line that she has, where she says, you know, I I didn't want the child to live, Um, you know, having to watch the father of her child gun down a man in cold blood while she's just, you know, shopping, shopping for a crib for, for her child is, you know, not something which she would, you would, she would wish on anyone, let alone, you know, her, her own child, um, that she wants to bring into this world. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the plot is perfectly pitched. Like it, it, again, it coasts along without a lot of huge details, but the, the big scenes are there when they need to be there and they deliver in the way that they need to deliver. Yeah, there are a couple of plot points, and one of which you were kind of alluding to just there, that I did want to touch on before we do move past this, because like you said, it's, it's it's easy to skip over certain parts of the plot, because they simult- it's simultaneously, every scene is 
crucial to the plot development, while not one particular scene standing out. So it's it's almost it's very easy just to kind of move past the scene, while if, even though every scene is, I think, critically important to the story. Uh, but one, the first is the Christmas, New Year's holiday trip to the kind of is it the hacienda of the of the yeah. of the family that they're friends with. Uh, that scene is striking for several reasons, I think. One of which is, of course, the fire that, that erupts on New Year's uh, outside the home. And then, ultimately, there's this particular performance by a man who's dressed in a costume. It's clear that he's drunk and, and very intoxicated. And ultimately, kind of while the, literally the forest burns around him, he's singing this song. And I thought, what one, what did you think of this scene and in the context of the plot? And two, also, you know, how this resonated with you. Because at first, I found it almost a little bit unsettling. But two, it also by the end resonated me with what the movie was trying to say. And I'm not even entirely sure I can, I can put my finger on why. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I can either, but I agree with you that it, it has that sort of eerie feeling to it. You know, that, that something is, is not quite right. And I think that's, you know, something that, uh, we see throughout the movie, whether it's, you know, these, these scenes of political revolt, whether it's Mm -hmm. her losing her child eventually, um, I think that you know that that unsettling feeling continues throughout, which is why I think that that scene in the ocean is so miraculous because we expect it to go a different way. I mean, you know, I, I know that I was expecting not to have a good outcome from that scene, but when she is able to save them, when you know the family does recognize that she's a hero, um, you know, it, it really uh, it really changes the tenor of the movie and leaves it on a much more optimistic note, which I appreciate. Yeah, and then the second part is kind of tangentially related to the political, you know, tumult that is going on in the in the background of this film uh, that ultimately culminates in this scene, right, where uh, you have Fermin. I don't know if he's actually the one who shoots the guy, but is in the is in the furniture store where Cleo and um, Sophia's mother, the the grandmother, is is at the store shopping for a crib. That ultimately this this kind of anxiety and the stress leads to uh, leads to Cleo's water breaking. But you, you see Fermin point a gun and look kind of you know contemptuously, murderously even at at her uh, as you see him weigh whether or not he should kill you know the the this this child that uh, she is bearing you know, his his ex lover and also his child. And you you see that decision running through his mind ultimately he decides to not do that of course but it's there and and and, but the scene that i wanted to talk about that kind of leads into that is the scene where cleo goes to this training ground uh which at first we kind of think is this kind of innocent so to or at least you know somewhat innocent uh ground where men young men who have nothing going on in their lives just train martial arts right but i found this scene again a scene that is you know, it feels incredibly meaningful by the end of the film, but it's definitely off-putting at first, especially given some of the performances and interactions that you get from Cleo and, and Fermin at the end of the scene. But what did you think of this? I thought this is like one of those scenes where, you know, people might forget about this scene by the end of the movie, but really stuck out to me. Okay, pause. You're going to have to remind me what all happens in the scene. <laughs> yeah, no, that's no, no problem at all. So, so Cleo, first she goes to, is it, um, it is... Adela's boyfriend, right? Whose name is it? Ramon, I think. Yeah, Ramon's yeah, house and, to and find. He takes her out to the training ground, right? I yeah, he that. takes her out to the we, training we ground. We see them training, and really, of course, again, a really stunningly shot scene. Yeah, and then you have this weird Professor Zvorek played by Latin lover guy. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that or not. Um, no. Uh, yeah, so he's like a 
I think he's like a YouTuber. Um, oh, right. he's a, no, he's a, he's a luchador, I believe. Okay. Um, but anyway, he get his, his like ring name is Latin lover, but he plays this professor Zvorek guy who's training them at the, at the training ground. Anyway, by the, the, in, the again, beautifully shot scene. Again, again, one of those things that probably has no business being interesting because it's just these guys doing martial art moves, right? But by the end of the scene, they're all leaving. Cleo eventually con- confronts Fermin uh, to tell him, you know, look, you, this is your child. What are you doing? And he threatens to kill her um, uh-huh. if he ever, if she ever, uh, you know, comes to find him again or says that the child is his. And I, and I thought this, this, scene, this scene to me was one of the ones that is the most striking in the movie outside of the ones we've already talked about and wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's, it's a scene that is indicative of the world that this character exists in and the fact that, you know, the, this small story that we're being told about this one person's life, this one family's life, is really just one element of a much larger context. And the fact that, you know, here she is watching these sort of warriors training, I mean, that could be the future reality for her child. I mean, is that something that she really wants? Probably not. And and for me, threatening to kill her, I think, obviously, just adds to that anxiety that she has about bringing a child into this world. And, and you know, just the whole the whole social hierarchy that is really going on in the movie that she'll she'll never be able to have a life of stability and comfort for herself and her child number one because the child isn't going to have a father and number two because you know she's a low-class domestic worker and 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 a woman and in in the world that she exists in um she'll she'll never be able to provide the life that she wants for her child well, again, those are just a few of the scenes that uh, make up yeah. the plot of this movie, which, again, I think it really goes back to what I was saying before, where it's easy to forget a scene here or there, and I think I think different people are going to, are going to remember uh, less well different scenes, just because they're all so critically important yeah. to the plot, and certain scenes might resonate with one person over another, right? Like, like just in explaining that scene itself, you got where you didn't remember this scene as well as I did, but... You know, there, uh-huh. there are other scenes where the reverse is probably also true, which just speaks to, uh, I think, the the plot trajectory being one that not only is, you know, incredibly well uh, plotted out, but also, you know, developed on screen. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's plenty more scenes which we could talk about, too. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the kind of final thing that I want to touch on, and we've been touching on this throughout the entire time, but just the direction of Alfonso Cuaron as, as a whole. I mean, we talked about his cinematography work already and his you know his visual uh, contributions to this, to this work of art, but I want to also talk about, you know, where you think he played, you know, the other places he played a role, which is, I mean, Again, based on my intro to this movie, it was literally every part of this film. Uh, what did you think of his overall his overall contributions here? Well, I mean, the authenticity is obviously a huge part of what makes this movie work uh, because it, it does feel so true to life. And I think that that's where Alfonso Cuarón comes in because this is true to his own life, right? Like this is his life story. He had a woman like Cleo in his life um, who he he even gives a tribute to at the end and in credits. Um, and I think that, you know, for that reason, his role in this movie is absolutely essential. And, and, you know, his commitment to telling the story, um, is why I think the movie 
turns out the way that it does because he's not just telling a story, he's telling like the story for him, right? So it's important to him that he tells it in the best way that he possibly can, and that is, uh, you know, matched by his visual eye, his choice of actors, you know, his scripts that he has written, the directorial vision that he gives to to, to each, uh, you know, frame of the movie. It's, It's no exaggeration whatsoever to say that this movie would not be anything near what it is if it was directed by literally anyone else. I mean, the fact that this is Alfonso Cuaron's story, this is his passion project, he, he spent five years making this movie, um, is an absolutely essential element to why this movie is so special and why it is such an impressive piece of work from a quality standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I just couldn't agree more. It's It's... I mentioned in the outset that this could be his, it might be his magnum opus. And, you know, if he creates something that is, you know, a more loved, in, in terms of what he pours into it, you know, a, a piece of art that he's poured more of himself, his soul, his love into, um, then that will be something even more special than this because it, it's really something. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. We could keep waxing lyrical about this movie probably for another hour or so, but we'll probably uh, stop repeating ourselves too much here and just move to our wrap-up phase. Scott, what is your favorite scene from Roma? I mean, I've talked about so many. I think, you know, it's got to be that ocean scene. It's just so impossible to ignore. I mean, you know, I love other scenes. I love that movie theater scene. I love the scene with the car where, you know, Marina de Tavira's character, you know, wrecks the car. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's a wonderful scene. Um, but that, that, uh, you know, that ocean scene for, for all the reasons we've talked about, I think is going to be one of the standout scenes of the year, if not the standout scene of the year. Um, just everything about it comes together in such a stunning way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I already said it earlier, um, in this segment that this was my favorite scene of the movie. I, I can't, (laughs) I can't emphasize that strongly enough that not only, it's not just the cinematography, although that is such a huge component of it. But exactly the way you described this, this shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be the outcome that we ultimately get. But it's it's a miracle, um, and there are lots of tiny miracles that we see throughout this film, and it kind of culminates in this one. Absolutely. All right, let's put a score on it, Scott. How high are you going to go for Roma? I mean, this is a ten. Like this movie is what tens were made for, right? Like this is a masterpiece. I would not be doing it justice if I didn't give it a ten. All right. Well, Scott, it might be our first episode where we have the same scores for both movies. I'm giving it a 10 as well. It, it, yeah. You know, it's one of those things where, I'll be honest, when I immediately walked out of the movie, it's one of the first times since like starting this podcast where I didn't even think about the score that I was going to give it because I just didn't have to, right? Like, it's one of those things where, you know, even the other 10 for a non-documentary film that I gave this year for searching, I walked out of it and I still had to think about whether or not I thought it was a 10. Sure. Um, and you walk out of this one and you know. you're left thinking about so many different things like you're too distracted by what you just saw to even think about how good it actually is and then over time as you process it a little bit you're like well damn <laughs> that's that's a really great movie <laughs> yeah it's it's impossible to ignore how how incredible it is yeah. from the moment the movie ends yeah well there you go 210 second time it's happened this year i don't know if it'll happen two times in another year We'll see, but uh, probably not. <laughs> I think we can both agree. You said it already, and I can't can't agree more that Roma is a masterpiece. Only time will tell if it enters the history books as such, but we certainly think that it is. But you know, having said that, let's take another short break. Let's all uh, sit with Roma for a few more moments, and when we return, we'll be discussing all things award shows with nominations for both the Golden Globes and the SAG Awards. We'll be back in a sec. Mm-hmm. 
back for part three of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, over the past several weeks, we've had several of the major award shows start teeing up their nominees, including the SAG Awards and the Golden Globes. We're going to talk about both, but let's go ahead and start with the second biggest night in Hollywood, organized by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, and that is, of course, the Golden Globes. You know, Scott, we both talked, we've talked about air plenty of times already about these different nominees and, you know, maybe who are the winners, who, who are the surprises, and who are the snubs. So, you know, why don't we just go ahead and start with the, the winners of the evening? And I think it has to be said that, that Vice is probably the biggest one in that category. Yeah, and I have to say I'm a little bit surprised to see that. Um, it, maybe, you know, a week ago, if, you, if, you, if we were discussing this, I wouldn't have been a surprise. But the reviews that I've been seeing coming yep. out for Vice now that the embargo has been lifted have been pretty negative. Um, and so, you know, I wonder what yeah. exactly it is that is drawing people to this movie. Maybe it's, you know, obviously the subject matter seems to be pretty good fodder for, uh, you know, awards type uh, recognition. Adam McKay is someone whose last movie, you know, was recognized uh, in the in the comedy or musical category. Big Short, um, you know, big actors, of course. I mean, you know, huge cast, Christian Bale, Amy Adams, Sam Rockwell. Um, the, I'm sure these are all factors weighing in its favor, but uh, it, it is a little bit surprising to me um, to see it, you know, clean up in the way that it did, at least in terms of nominations. You know, of course, it remains to be seen whether it will actually win anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so but, you, you have it. It has six separate nominations, and, and I agree. I actually took a peek at the, some of the reviews today, and I, I don't know if I'd say negative, but middling certainly, especially for a movie with six yeah. Golden Globe nominations and is, you know, it, it, at the Golden Globes, let's just go ahead and, and, and call them out here. It's been nominated for Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, uh, <laughs> which we can have, all have a laugh about that, I'm sure. Of course, uh, yeah. yeah. best and Best Actor in a Motion Picture, uh, Musical, or Comedy for Christian Bale, who plays Dick Cheney. Uh, you also have, I think is it, it's uh, Sam Rockwell gets the nod for Supporting Actor uh, in a Motion Picture, and is it uh, Amy Adams has it for... Uh, supporting actress and then you know that's half of their nominations right there and then there's one for best screenplay one for best director for adam mckay and then there's one other that i'm i think i'm missing here but uh the the point is it got pretty a pretty comprehensive uh nomination list for a movie at the golden i mean pretty much as comprehensive as it gets at the golden globes And, and yet exactly to your point we haven't seen it yet we're seeing it you know when it comes out in about a week but Nevertheless, it seems like a little bit surprising. And maybe my, I don't know if I said this on air or if I just, or if I even said this to you, but my hot take on this movie, having not seen it, is that it's going to be the post of this year. But uh, maybe the reviews indicate that, but certainly the nominations yeah. it's receiving, it doesn't yeah, indicate I mean, I, that. I think maybe this is a case of it, this movie benefiting from the split in musical or comedy versus drama. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe the fact that 
musical or comedy isn't doesn't always have a lot of the big heavy hitters ultimately. Um, although you know there there are some some bigger hitters in that category this year. You know, you look at Mary Poppins, you look at The Favorite, um, which I believe is also in the musical or comedy category. Um, Another thing to laugh at, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I think that. Um, you know, there, there are some heavier hitters, but in general, this is probably an easier way to get a nomination is, is if you're, you you have a musical or a comedy. So maybe it's benefiting from that a little bit. But at the same time, you know, the screenplay uh, awards and director award, you know, aren't broken up by drama or, or comedy or musical. And neither are the supporting still, actor or actress awards. Right. That's that's also true. So and Vice is still getting recognition for those. So. Um, you know, maybe the Hollywood Foreign Press, you know, just saw something different than, than the critics on this one. It certainly wouldn't be the first time. I mean, maybe they literally saw a different cut of the movie. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's possible. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out what their sixth nom- nomination is, but maybe I've overlooked it. But it doesn't matter at this point, I think. Uh, other kind of, you, you mentioned several of these already, but, you know, the other kind of big, big ones to call out here is, of course, A Star is Born, receiving many nominations. Uh, you know, I would say a, a very musically focused movie that has found itself in the drama category, which is ironic, I think. I'm not, I'm not I don't, it, I think this is a little bit less egregious because I think it is a drama at the end of the day. But in terms of a, a, a year of musical movies that isn't just a straight up musical, this is about as close as I think that you could get to that category without totally entering it. But uh, yeah, so you got five nominations for A Star is Born, five for The Favorite as well, which you already mentioned, and, and five for Green Book to go along with that. Yeah, and these are three of the movies which you're going to get tired of hearing their name uh, being called in, in all of you know the award ceremonies uh, that are coming up because these are, I mean, maybe the the three front runners for Best Picture, Green Book, Favorite, and A Star Is Born. So definitely no surprises there to see them recognized. You know, as you as you pointed out, maybe a little bit of a surprise to see uh, A Star Is Born in the drama category and The Favorite in the comedy category, um, but. You know, I, I think, I mean, yeah, I agree that, that A Star is Born probably does belong in the in the drama category. You know, the favorite, I think it could go either way. Again, this probably a case of them, you know, putting it where they thought it would be easier to get a nomination. Although I think this is, you know, a movie that will get nominated whatever category it would be in. Um, mm-hmm. And Green Book, um, you know, is that is it nominated comedy or musical as well? It is, yes. Yeah, uh, you know, again, kind of what you what you would expect um, from that, just because it, it does have a more lighthearted, easygoing tone to it, mm-hmm. which seems to be really what they're looking at when they're looking for a comedy or musical, not necessarily you know whether it's a laugh out loud funny comedy. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, again, no surprises with these three. They're they're three of the big hitters. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of looking on the list here before we kind of switch gears maybe and talk about some other movies that I think probably are, are happy with their nominations that they came out. But you have First Man in the musical or comedy category. Of course, it, it hasn't been nominated for Best best Motion Picture, but Claire Foy is in the Best Actress category in the in the musical or comedy. For First Man? Oh, sorry. This is actually Supporting Actress. I apologize. I will okay. wind that I back. was like, oh my gosh. Okay, wait a minute. We're going to have to talk about something at First Man as a musical or comedy. Uh, no, I, I I went too far down my list and it, it stopped splitting them between I mean, the, honestly the though, to me, it is one of the best musicals of the year because Justin Hurwitz's That's score true. is so amazing. It, I mean, it, it's basically, it would have probably been better as a musical than trying to be a drama. Yeah, I, I will say, I, too, I, eighth grade is, is in the is in the musical or comedy category, which that doesn't feel right to me, but what do I know? Yeah, I mean, 
Yes, but at the same time, I think in terms of movies which are likely to get nominated, this is definitely one of the most comedic that you would probably see. Um, you know, yeah. obviously it does have um, serious, you know, mm-hmm. parts to it and, and serious messages as well. But like, I think, you know, you're not going to see a straight up comedy like, you know, even even something like Game Night, which, you know, a lot of people love. Yeah, I like probably, it. Again, probably not going to even be able to make it into the musical or comedy category. I think, really, you have to expect that the nominees here are going to be more of a mixture of comedy and drama. Maybe even sometimes leaning more heavily into the drama. Uh, but it's it's going to be hard for just a straight-up comedy to, to ever get nominated, even in this category, I would say. Yeah, that's probably fair. So maybe I, I shouldn't... Uh look down my my spectacles too hard at this but and then also i saw that uh tully is in the musical or comedy category which yeah yeah, yeah again again, I mean, again straddles know, I mean, the middle no i to- totally right, hear exactly. it. i think that's perfectly yeah. in line with what you were just saying so so there it is i mean i'd say the probably the actual like the actual closest comedy that you get uh i mean obviously mary poppins returns musical fits perfectly into that category mm-hmm. uh crazy rich asians probably i mean that's that's yeah, safely in the definitely. comedy category getting nominated. romantic comedy yeah yeah absolutely uh, yeah, so there's that. Uh, I think some other ones that not necessarily winning by sheer number of nominations that it's receiving, but uh, I think simply for the fact that it might be overachieving based on some people's expectations. Black Klansman received four nominations. I think that's very something that it should be very very proud of, and honestly, I, I personally very worthy of. Yes, I, I agree, and I think you know this is one of the hot button, you know, most 2018 movies to come out. Um, it, this year, so I, I love seeing it recognized, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why it, it was recognized because it does feel so relevant. Yeah, so Spike Lee got a nod for best director. The the movie itself got nominated for best motion picture drama, and then of course you have John David Washington who played Ron Stallworth as best actor in a motion picture drama, and then best supporting actor uh, Adam Driver got a nomination for his role as Flip in in the movie, which feel, feels right. Obviously, the supporting actor, supporting actress is more competitive at the Globes because there aren't two separate categories for it. Uh, and the fact that Adam Driver has gotten the nod in, in the top five for supporting actor feels right to me as I kind of reflect back on the on the year as a whole. Yeah, and I do expect that Adam Driver will get nominated um, for the Academy Award in this, in this category as well. John David Washington, maybe slightly more of a surprise, although I think he is gaining traction. He also did get a, a SAG nomination. Um, so I, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see him sneak in there, um, at the Oscars as well, but I think he'd probably be the fifth choice, um, if he was able to get in there, because I think, um, you know, there are some more obvious, obvious, uh, options, you know, with, with Bradley Cooper and Viggo Mortensen to name a couple. Yeah, no, if I just scan the list here of the 10 people that have been nominated for the best actor across the two categories, I mean, like you said, I think Bradley Cooper and Viggo Mortensen are the first two to jump off the page. Just based on hype alone, Christian Bale. I mean, everything that I've read about Vice indicates that Christian Bale is probably one of the strongest parts of the movie. It just it just seems that way from what I'm reading. Uh, and then, that, I mean, that leaves you... That's three right there. And then Willem Dafoe for At Eternity's Gate. I mean, at some point, he's probably going to win an Oscar, right? Has he won an Oscar for Best Actor before? No, uh, unfortunately not. Um, he, he's, he's a great actor, though. Actually, I want to say that last year for Florida Project was actually his first nominee, nomination, which seems crazy given the career that he has had. But, um, you know, I guess he is more of a character actor. But I, I agree. I think he will get one down the line. But I don't know that this small movie about Vincent Van Gogh is his ticket to getting it this year. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe he'll get a nomination, but I agree. I, I don't think he's going to overshadow, you know, the the top two that you kind of mentioned there, Bradley Cooper uh-huh. and, and Viggo Mortensen. But, you know, may, maybe John David Washington will sneak in there if yeah. he can if he can sneak past Remy Malik, who, in, in my opinion, might be more deserving of that than, than John David Washington, just, just based on the roles that they played. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't agree with that, as you probably know. Uh, but, I mean, I think in the mind of all awards voters at this moment, I mean, Rami Malek is up there with, with Cooper and Mortensen as well. I mean, he, he's, a, he's pretty much a lock. He's the closest thing to a lock that, that we have at this point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so last movie to kind of note here is a winner before I turn things over to you to see if, if there are any that I have missed that you want to call out. I think I think it's safe to say that, that um, Can You Ever Forgive Me might be a winner here as well, you know, getting nominations for their two acting roles. Of course, I think probably a little bit disappointed that they don't also – uh, get a nod for screenplay. I, th- I think you and I both feel like that's probably a category in which they they could have gotten some yeah. more traction, if, if not also for best director. But that being said, you do have Richard E. Grant for his role as Jack and, and best supporting actor, and then a, a best actress for Melissa McCarthy in her role, lead role as Lee Israel. Yeah, and I think it shows how strong both of these performances are. That you know, uh, even though this is a smaller movie, didn't really get a wide release. Um, you know, perhaps not subject matter that necessarily jumps off the screen. Um, that it, it, both of these actors have been recognized pretty much across the board, and I, I expect both of them to, to also get the Academy Award nomination. Um, definitely in the case of Richard E. Grant, and I think Melissa McCarthy has a strong chance as well. Even though, like last year, this is this is a tough field for Best Actress once again. Um, mm-hmm. I think I, I, I still expect to see her name in there, and, and I, I mean I think she's absolutely one hundred percent deserving as is Richard E. Grant. Yeah, I, I do view her. I'm not saying that she's like the fit, the last person in for the, yeah. for the five for the Oscars, but you know, as I scan down the list here of just the ten people that have been nominated on here, so of course that leaves out anyone who might have gotten snubbed in this category uh, at the Globes. But you know, I look at Glenn Close, Lady Gaga. Melissa McCarthy, Olivia Coleman, yeah. Olivia Coleman, and you know that, that that's kind of the top four, right? And then I think, I think Emily Blunt is probably gaining a lot of traction, whether it's for you know Mary Poppins or whether it's supporting on A Quiet Place. Like she's been recognized for both of them. So yeah, I mean, I was gonna say, and then I think it's it's a strong fight there, you know, for the fifth place, which you know Rosamund Pike is getting a lot of hype, I think, for her role in A Private right. War, although I didn't see the movie personally. And Nicole Kidman is is being campaigned hard for as well for Destroyer, which is coming out at Christ- on Christmas Day. And, and of course, and then uh, actually, I was gonna say, and then you have two people who I think were huge fans of earlier this year, and Elsie Fisher in eighth grade, and also Charlize Theron and and Tully. Yeah, I mean, I think both of them are, are pretty much outsiders. Um, I, I, I would be surprised if either one of them got nominations. But, I mean, you know, I, I'd have to sit down and write it out myself. But definitely at least one of them is would be in my top five for the year in terms of, of this category. Um, and, you know, especially in the case of Elsie Fisher, love seeing a young actor recognized for, again, a smaller movie, not wide, re- not wide release. Certainly, you know, a lot of people did see the movie I, I think it probably did very well um but uh you know it, not the type of movie which you typically see recognized by the award shows but i think you know it, it, it's a, it's a slow trend and it'll take a few more years till we get there but i think you know this marks a, a gradual gradual trend towards smaller independent films maybe getting getting the look that they deserve although certainly i think these nominations show that there's still a long way to go in that in that category 
Yeah, we'll definitely see where it shakes out. If these movies are going to get nods, and by these, I'm of course, I'm referring to 8th Grade of Tully, it's got, it, it would probably be in this actress category, but like you've already said, it's so sacked this year that it's difficult, I think, to call a winner because even, you know, those top four that I first mentioned, it, it's going to take me a little time to think about who I actually think is the best performance. And, you know, I felt, re- I mean, I feel personally feel really strongly about Glenn Close's performance in The Wife this year as one of my top performances of the year. Uh, but uh, that being said, it... it Elsie Fisher, Charlize Theron, they, they both also put in spectacular performances that if you go back and listen to our episodes for those movies that, you know, I praise them and, of course, you praise them as well. Yeah, and I mean, I think another name, you know, which maybe hasn't been getting traction, but is always a possibility, Saoirse Ronan for Mary Queen of Scots. Um, and Margot Robbie for Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah, although I think Margot Robbie is being listed as more of a supporting performance and got it. Um, and, and Saoirse Ronan is getting the lead. Um characterization so you know would not expect would not be surprised to see either of them pop up and i believe margot robbie did get a nomination either at the either at the globes or at the sag i can't remember it might have been the sag yeah so i I think that this seamlessly transitions us into our next topic which i think might as well just go to snubs right and to your point mary queen of scots uh, i'm not even sure it gets a single nomination at the globes Mm. i mean maybe it's a case of it's going up against another victorian movie and the favorite and uh, you know, and the favorite was the favorite um, mm. for for everyone, particularly uh, in it, I, particularly in its acting performances. Yes, and I think it's unfortunate that you know the the two movies are kind of being pitted against each other by virtue of their subject matter, but also by virtue of being released around the same time. Mm. Um, because it seems to me like they are different movies. I mean, obviously, it, it's hard to say that the favorite is like any other movie just because Jorgos <laughs> exactly, Lanthimos. Yeah brings such a unique flair to, to his films. Um, and, you know, Mary Queen of Scots probably seems more like your your traditional, um, you know, period piece, although, of course, I haven't gotten the chance to see it yet. Um, but, again, I mean, maybe, maybe this is a positive thing. Again, I, I can't say without having seen Mary Queen of Scots, but maybe the fact that they're recognizing the weird movie over perhaps the more straightforward movie, uh, it, it marks an encouraging trend. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see. Time will tell. I think that yes. you're right. It, I think that's maybe a trend that's starting. Although, of course, it, it's not like it's it's picked up ahead of steam yet, right? I mean, yeah. with Shape of Water last year, I think that's probably the first example of something that's you know a really kind of out there movie in terms of its uh, its style, right? Uh, but this year, of course, is I, I think it's further even you know even even more weird. I, I would argue the favorite compared to Shape of Water, but yeah. I'm sure people will maybe disagree with me there. It's different kinds of weird for sure. Right. Yeah. That's I, what I was kind of yeah, going to say. Absolutely, yeah. An- another snub to, to kind of talk about here at the, at the Globes, which I think probably we're not surprised by, is First Man. Uh, yes, it gets a nod for its best original score, and, and Claire Foy gets Thank a nod God. gets a nod for best supporting actress. But it doesn't it doesn't kind of get anything beyond that, which you know it might have expected to, given. Uh, Damien Chazelle's past as well as Ryan Gosling's past as well yeah and I think we'll we'll see this trend continue um I think that you know the movie is kind of ruining the the consequences of phoning sort of it in talked... <laughs> do what ruining the consequences of phoning it in um... well I, I don't know that I would say it's fun, out, it, that they phone it in necessarily but I think they're ruining the consequences of the fact that they tell this story from an emotionless standpoint like you know no no 
it's not the kind of movie which gets you emotionally involved. Yeah. Neil Armstrong isn't the character that you connect with. And, you know, we talked about this in our review, but maybe, you know, maybe that's what they're going for. I mean, I'm sure that that's probably more authentic to how Neil Armstrong is really like. So maybe in that sense, you know, they're telling the real story, but it just doesn't necessarily make for a compelling movie, uh, movie watching experience. And I think that's what we're seeing in the fact that it's not getting these nominations. And, and I mean, you know, again, I don't think that it, it deserves to, to be recognized uh, based on, at least on how, um, quali- I mean, how tough of a crop of movies that we have, um, you know, eligible this year. Although, of course, you know, that score by Justin Hurwitz is, is uh, magnificent. Um, and, and I mean, I, I think is one of the front runners for the Oscar along with Nicholas Bertels for If Bill Street Could Talk. Um, Which did not get a nomination at the Gloves for Best Original Score. Wow, that's actually shocking. Um, but I would expect to see it going forward. But, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm all in for Justin Hurwitz in this category. And I think, you know, I'm all in for this movie in technical categories as well because I think, you know, that that moon landing scene is, you know, truly stunning and one of the best scenes of the year even if the movie itself from a storytelling standpoint is, is kind of inert. Nice, nice pun there. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so kind of other big, I would even argue bigger snubs which I, are a little frustrating. From my perspective, I'd like to start first with Widows, which appears nowhere in any of the nomina- yes. uh, nominations. It's a movie that we did not re- review as, as a kind of a core movie in our podcast, but one which we both rated very highly. And, you know, Viola Davis not getting a Best Actress nod, which is understandable. It's a very competitive category. Uh, some of the other acting performances, I, you know, obviously the one that comes to mind is Daniel Kaluuya not getting a Best Supporting Actor nod, which, again, it's a, it's a competitive category, but I think that they're could be space for him but also you know original screenplay score all these things elizabeth debicki i mean yeah that, that, that was gonna be one for me yeah. yeah that was gonna be the one that i closed with because yeah. you know i look you know i look at the best supporting actress uh category and yes it is in, in highly competitive with regina king with amy adams advice haven't seen it yet so i'm not sure claire foy uh and then of course the two from the favorite emma stone and rachel vice so that being said i think that you, it should like there should be there should be room for Elizabeth Debicki in this. And yes, Claire Foy was one of the stronger parts of First Man, but I don't know if her performance is better for me than Elizabeth Debicki. And I, and I, you know, based on the reviews that I'm seeing, I'm not sure Amy Adams is either, although I am, you know, I'm, I'm definitely out of the closet as a, mag, you know, magnificent Amy Adams fan here. So Interesting choice of phrase, but yeah. Um, I think, I mean, yeah, I, I absolutely would put Elizabeth Debicki way over Claire Foy. Um, I, I'm, yeah somewhat mad online about the fact that this didn't get nominated for anything. Um, although when we talk about the SAGs, I will be even more, um, mad online when we, when we talk about what a particular award at the SAG awards and particularly, um, you know, here when considering what is nominated in the drama category and, and uh-huh. we'll probably get to this momentarily. Um, but certainly one movie and, you know, for my money, although I did enjoy a, another one of the nominees, you know, a pretty decent amount. I think Widows is a far more deserving nominee than, than two of the movies, which did ultimately get nominated for Best Motion Picture Drama. Uh, and, and it's a shame because, you know, I don't really know what it is about the movie that's preventing, you know, awards from recognizing it because it, it seems like it has all the ingredients, right? Like it's it's got an amazing cast, a director in Steve McQueen, who's literally won Best Picture before for 12 Years a Slave. Um, you know, a, a high high uh name screenwriter and get jillian flynn um you know 
it, it's it's got everything that you would expect to see in, a, in an Oscar contender, uh, and yet it's getting shut out, even though it's a really good movie. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the more cynical among us might say that the Oscar baby vice is keeping it out of all those categories with Adam McKay, yeah. and uh, one one might wonder if... Or, it, you know, a, a, even more Oscar baby movie, which shall not be named until a little, in a little bit, I imagine. Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about like the best director, best screenplay categories, okay, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. Uh, the movie that you're alluding to that shall not be named for a few more minutes uh, is, is it, it isn't in those categories. But I think Thank that God, there was no best director nomination. Oh for my it. God, <laughs> this particular movie. Yeah, right. But I I think that um, it, it does not to be too cynical, but I do wonder if if Steve McQueen were white and the, and Viola Davis were white and this movie were about all white people, you wonder if Best Director or Best Screenplay nominations might go towards go towards Widows over, over Vice, just given the reviews that I've seen and the critical consensus that I've seen. Hashtag globe so white. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, obviously, I... I, I hesitate to say that too strongly, but it, I do I do wonder at things, yeah. like, that, things like that. Uh, of course, the the less cynical I mean, would point to if Bill Street could talk be nominated for Best Screenplay and Spike Lee be nominated for Best Director, but... Yeah, and Crazy Rich Asians, of course, also getting recognized. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, that being said, I, I don't know if tokenizing <laughs> is, is a good strategy for the Globes yeah. either, so we'll see. And, and I think the thing with Viola Davis, yeah, I think it's a strong performance, but I think she's one of those actresses where you could literally nominate her for every single movie she's in. That's yeah, because she's yeah. just such a talented actress and oh, such sure. a commanding presence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe sometimes you have to just kind of weigh your options and say, hey, maybe it's time to recognize somebody else. So yeah. for me, that's not as huge of a snub as some of the others. No, no, I, I actually, I totally agree. I, I don't think that Viola Davis knocking a nomination is is the snub in this movie. I do think Steve yeah. McQueen and, and I, I just meant more like I think the film was advertised kind of as not your typical white crime right. film. And, and I right. wonder if if that, uh, you know, more implicitly has, has played a role in its lack of nominations at both the Globes uh-huh. and the SAGs. Anyway, uh, I think one, well, I guess we'll hit three more things and snubs that I think before we move on to one final surprise uh, that we will talk about that we're kind of been building up here and alluding to. But another snub here, yes, it did receive uh, three nominations, I believe. One, uh, one for Best Screenplay, one... Uh, for best foreign language film and and one that I'm uh, is escaping me at the moment, but Roma not being nominated for best motion picture drama just seems seems criminal to me. Surely got a best director, right? Uh, it did, right? That's the third one I'm missing. Okay. Best director. Thank goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about to have a heart attack. Yeah, I mean, this movie should be nominated for all of them. You know, in my opinion, and I think. Oscar time, it will be recognized mm. because it has that, you know, as we talked about last year with Shape of Water, it has that great blend of storytelling and, you know, technical uh, you know, mm. prowess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it will end up with a lot of nominations. But yeah, it's strange, you know, when you consider that it's the Hollywood foreign press, that they're not going to recognize. Yeah. I made that joke earlier. <laughs> clearly the best foreign movie of the year, if not one of the best movies of the year. Um, yeah. And One of the things so, that I w- I mentioned earlier off air when we were talking about this was I-, I don't know what the rules are for the Globes is I don't know if this would be silly if this were true I think but I don't know if foreign language films are allowed to be nominated for Best Picture since it has a foreign language film category. That being said, I think it's silly if that's the case. But that I mean, also that being said, you don't see any Best Animated Fe- you don't see the any any of the nominees from Best Animated Feature in the Best Motion yeah. Pictures either. And I think that Spider Verse, you know, I'd have to sit down and think think pretty hard about this, but I think Spider Verse is. Pr- might be better than some of the movies that are that are in that have been nominated here. So I think that you know maybe that is a, a deserving one as well. 
Yeah, and honestly, as silly as it would be, if that were the case about the, the foreign language and best picture being separate, I kind of hope that's the case because I don't want to imagine that we live in a world where, you know, this this certain movie can be nom- would be nominated for best motion picture drama over Roma. Which like, is I certainly a drama. I, I can't imagine that we, that we live in a... I mean, it, forget about what kind of movie it is. It doesn't deserve to be nominated in any of these categories. Um, yeah. But and I mean, it also should be. It also world. should be in the, in the other category, in my opinion. But. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, we're we're almost there. We only got two more movies to hit, and we <laughs> I mean, will you get probably to this. Figured it out by now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. But um. Also, I think to call out. Yes, we got some nominations for Elsie Fisher and Charlize Theron in the in these roles for these kind of smaller indie movies. But you don't really see them anywhere else. And I think that. The, one of the bigger snubs here at the Globes is the fact that the lack of representation of indie movies. Yes, there are fewer categories at the Globes for movies than at the Oscars, and, and the Oscars is very well known, I think, for giving nods to movies that ultimately have no chance of winning categories but deserve, but deservedly, uh, you know, get some nominations just, just for the recognition. But I, I thought it was noticeable how lacking indie movies were in the Globe nominations. Yeah, and you could probably count Roma among those, you know, as, as perhaps snubbed by this I mean, phenomenon. $15, $15 million budget for Roma, I don't know if it counts yeah. as an indie movie, but... Well, yeah, fair enough, but I, I think in terms of the accessibility of it, but... Um, sure, that's true. I, you know, some other movies, I think, Leave No Trace, First Reformed, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, these, th- these are some movies which... Uh, Burning is another example, also another foreign film. These are some, some movies which we talked about, you know, have been recognized by like some of these smaller award shows in films critics circles. Um, maybe who, you know, who, who obviously have a more narrow focus, um, but you know, completely shut out here. Which, you know, I, unfortunately, I think is to be expected, just because these are the, more, the bigger and more populist awards. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, what could have expected to see like at least an acting nomination for. For Leave No Trace, or, or for, certainly for Ethan Hawke for First Reformed, but um, you know, not really expecting that uh, these movies are going to clean up in any award show. Yeah, I mean, Burning didn't even get a foreign language film nomination from, wow, from the Globes. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right. La- last thing here, you already kind of mentioned it, but it, so it's a perfect segue. But I think Ethan <laughs> Ethan Hawke getting not getting the best actor nom. Yet, yes, we mentioned that there are a few heavy hitters in this category uh, to compete with, but. That being said, they were nominating Willem Dafoe and Lucas Hedges and Lin-Manuel Miranda and Robert Redford and John C. Riley. who I'm not saying they didn't put in good performances in their respective roles, but that being said, do all are all these people deserving over uh, o- over the wow, I just blanked. Ethan Hawke. Over Ethan Hawke, yes. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I I, I really don't know what to think about where he stands in, in the race at this point. I mean, I think you'd have to say, unfortunately, that he's on the outside looking in, uh, if only, like, just on the outside. I think this movie, it, it, you know, it's a small movie. It came out early in the year. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of a, a dense movie in terms of the themes that it looks at um, for the average moviegoer. Um, so, sadly, even though I think it is a great performance and, you know, love him as an actor in general, um I wouldn't be stunned to see him get the Oscar nod, but I think right now he's kind of fallen off, whereas maybe at the start of the awards season, you might have had him in that top five. I don't think he, you could say he's there anymore. Yeah, I, I haven't seen First Reformed yet, but I know that everything I've heard about his performance is really strong and you know maybe a little bit eyebrow-raising to not see him 
on the list here, especially since again it's another example of an indie of a smaller indie film where you could just give him the nomination, even though you know maybe he has no chance of winning the award, just to recognize the film itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, gloves off, Scott. I'll let you get up on your soapbox. Talk about this biggest surprise in the motion picture drama best picture category. Yeah, I mean, again, so so the movie that we're talking about, of course, is Bohemian Rhapsody, and I think. For me, I mean, I, I, obviously, I'm, I'm very upset about it getting the Golden Globe nomination over movies like Roma and Widows, but I'm even more mad about what happened with the SAG Awards. I said this when we reviewed the movie. Like, I'm not going to begrudge anyone for enjoying this movie. Like, I enjoyed the movie. There were there were large parts of the movie that I enjoy. I think that Live Aid scene is great. I think Rami Malek does a really good job, although, you know, I, I wouldn't. For me, this is not one of the, my top five acting performances in, in the Best Actor category. Um, but, you know, that being said, I think he does a really solid job as Freddie Mercury. But if you're talking about the quality of movie, like, there's no way this movie should come anywhere near this category. Because it's not a well-done, it's not a well-made movie. I mean, I'm not going to re-review it. If you if you want to know why we think that, you can listen to, you know, go back and listen to our review of it on that episode. But... Uh, from a quality standpoint, this movie just sticks out like a sore, sore thumb amongst all of the other nominees. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe just the fact that it's a crowd pleaser that is drawing people to it. But, um, you know, you'd have to say between this and the SAG Awards now, it's probably a favorite for an Oscar nomination. And I think that's a real shame because no matter what else gets nominated in that category, something more deserving is going to get left out. Yeah, I I was shocked when I saw it getting nominated for best uh, best motion picture drama. Again, the, the the most criminal of it being the fact that Roma and Widows then did not get nominated either. Yeah. And that being said, he, I think there's probably twenty movies that could have been. I mean, may, okay, maybe I'm exaggerating with the number I twenty. Mean, yeah, leave no trace. Can you ever forgive me? Like, let's go down the list. Thoroughbreds. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, there there are ridiculous. a large number of movies that are that, in my opinion, are more deserving. I mean, heck, I would have rather seen Avengers of Infinity War nominated than, you know, like, whatever this movie's called, Bohemian Rhapsody. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, at the very least, I mean, there's no way they're going to nominate two comic book movies in the best motion picture drama, because they do, they do have Black Panther in there, but... I mean, hot take, I enjoyed Infinity War more than Black Panther, actually, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're probably not alone in that, I think... There are many aspects of Infinity War that could that I can understand if someone said that were more enjoyable. I personally think Black Panther is a better movie, but I can understand someone saying that uh, that they thought Infinity War was a more enjoyable watch. Even though I'm surprised you're saying that because Infinity War is a long movie. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think maybe the spectacle of it, you know, just captured won me over. You. But you know, also I think since we're discussing it, like you know, for me, I, although I did like Black Panther, I think it's a really good movie. Again, I think if you look at the the list of potential nominees here a lot more deserving nominees than black panther um i think maybe it's getting definitely some boost for being like one of the movie moments of the year and you know one of the movies that people a lot of people are talking about you know not be you know not that it's it's a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination but um i mean you're talking about the best movies of the year right we yeah it's not it it's not it's definitely benefiting from the discussion that people are having about it um because I think there there are definitely more deserving candidates, all the movies that we've named, and, and you know many others as well. 
Agreed, agreed. All right, Scott, do we want to, I mean, since we're already talking about it, let's switch over to the, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, which is also, which who, who have also released their nominees. Very limited categories. Again, there's only, I think, six categories for movies in this one, and then that's kind of four acting categories, so you got your, your lead actor, lead actress, supporting actress, supporting actress, best uh, performance by a cast in a motion picture, and then outstanding stunt performance by an ensemble and a motion picture. And we're going to talk about the other five categories, but since we're already talking about kind of the, the surprise that, that kind of kept, puts you on the floor, so to speak, of Bohemian Rhapsody here and the best motion picture drama at the Golden Globes, I think we'll also just go ahead and segue and talk about the the fact that Bohemian Rhapsody was nominated for Best Outstanding Performance by a cast in a motion picture, which, again, is, is even more flooring, I agree, than the Golden Globes. Yeah, I mean, I think when thinking about the SAG Awards nominations in general, I think there's not a lot of huge differences uh, from the Golden Globes and maybe not as many talking points as we had with the Golden Globes since we, we went through all of that. But, I mean, this is just mind-boggling to me that this movie is nominated in the best cast. I mean, what? Who, who else is there besides Robin? I mean, Mike Myers, really? Like, is he is he what they're counting as, like, you know, involved in the yeah. best cast. I think Lucy okay. Boynton is probably at the top of their list. She's, I'd imagine she's fine, but like, are you are you serious nominating this over Widows? I mean, this is the category that Widows was made for. I mean, look at how many great actors are in this movie, and they're all doing great work. It's not just they show up and like you know, uh, then go away after one scene. They're all great. I mean, th- this is the category which Widows should absolutely be nominated in. Um, and I mean, even, you know, again, let's go down the list. I mean, again, Infinity War has a better cast than, than Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, yeah, I mean, I would say Creed, Creed, Creed 2 would be a better cast. Yes, with, Creed yeah. 2. That is exactly what I was thinking of earlier. Like, that is a great ensemble movie. I mean, okay, let's say you love Bohemian Rhapsody. Let's say you love Rami Malek's performance. Do you really think that this movie belongs in the best cast category? You cannot honestly tell me that with a straight face. I would no say the, I would say I would say the wife is best out, best uh, outstanding cast performance because I mean we're talking like four or five really strong performances I'd say in that movie. Yeah, I mean I I didn't even like the, the actor who played the son in the wife, and I still think it deserves for you know the for for Jonathan Price and Glenn Close and Christian Slater. Like those three actors alone are a better cast than whatever is in Bohemian Rhapsody besides Rami Malek. Yeah. Maybe Mamma Mia, here we go again. I'm not sure. I'm, yeah, I'm just going back I mean, through movies that on, I've seen this year. Seriously, like Cher, Cher, are you kidding me? So, totally snubbed for Best Supporting Actress. Okay, I know that this is, I think this is more of a reasonable response. I'd, I'd say Ocean's 8 is more deserving than Bohemian Rhapsody. Sure. And that's I mean, truly, I can, I, can, yeah. I think you can look back through the movies that we, we, you know, named or that we reviewed this year. And like, if you name one of them. There's probably about a 75% chance that it's a better candidate for, for best cast than this. I mean, it, it's it's laughable. It honestly is. Like, I don't know what they were thinking. And I mean, you know, I generally take the Screen Actors Guild more seriously, right? Because this is actors, like, you know, choosing, uh, you know, the, the best in their craft. So you think it, no one's going to know it better than the actors themselves. But sheesh, I don't know what they saw here. Yeah. I think the only last one that I would add almost as a kind of a, as a throwaway joke is is um well i guess it's not really a joke but uh, isle of dogs i don't know if it could count because it's voice sure, acting I mean, but spider-verse yeah. like come on while we're talking about animated movies like come on like all of these all of these <laughs> would have been so much more deserving yeah all right we'll, we'll get our press box there uh i mean that being said you know, it... here's what I'll, here's what i'll say in conclusion 
I know it wasn't this year, but All Is Lost would have been a better nomination for Best Cast in a Motion Picture than Bohemian Rhapsody. I don't even remember that movie. <laughs> that's the, it's Robert Redford on a boat. He's the only oh actor yeah okay in the that, okay that, that's what I thought I, that's what I thought that it was. But I was like, there's no way it's actually what he's saying. Would have been better. Would have been better than this. My dinner with Andre. Like the list goes on. Oh man, what was that like? Really crappy Valentine's Day movie from like five or six years ago. Valentine's um, Day. <laughs> no, no, I can't remember. It had Taylor Swift in it. It doesn't matter. Um, yeah, Val- Valentine's Day. Is that actually what that was called? Oh, okay, well yeah. maybe that's what I'm talking about then. I don't know. Sure, uh, throw it in there as well. Man, anyway. So, all right, we, there are a few other categories. And just because this one's different and you don't get anything like this at the Golden Globes, there's this outstanding performance by a stunt ensemble in a motion picture category for the for the Screen Actors Guild Awards. And in that, obviously, it's like, it, it, this almost looks like your best popular movie <laughs> category yeah. um, from from the Oscars because you have Ant-Man and the Wasp. You have all the Marvel MCU movies from this year, literally all three of them, Black Panther, Infinity War, and Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, then Mission Impossible Fallout, and then uh, the Netflix-distributed Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I haven't seen. But I, how do we feel about this category, Scott? I mean, I think, it's, I think it's cool that they're recognizing this area that, you know, you don't see uh, recognized even by the Oscars. I mean, there's not really a place where, where stunts fit in. And, uh, you know, obviously it is a very... You know, it requires a lot of skill and talent, and mm-hmm. um, so, so it's it's great to see them recognized. Uh, I'm, you know, I don't personally have too many complaints with the fact that, that we have this award. I, I, again, I think this is an area where who's going to appreciate a stunt coordinator uh, better than you know the actor for whom they are stepping in for, unless you're Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, you know th- this is it makes sense that it's at the Screen Actors Guild Awards, and and you know I like that this is this is an award personally i'd give it to mission impossible although i don't know exactly what how it qualifies given that you know tom cruise does all of his own stunts i mean i, I guess you'd still count him among the stunt ensemble yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think that would be it i haven't seen ballad of buster shrugs so i don't know how that plays out but yeah uh yeah i think i also like just don't know like know how you'd even choose among these different movies and maybe because i don't really right, think yeah. about the stunt performances when i think uh-huh. about movies so maybe, maybe that's my own fault yeah Anyway, uh, any any outstanding things you want to talk about in any of the acting of the four acting categories that we have left? You did we did talk or, or briefly mention earlier that that Margot Robbie is nominated yeah. for best female actor in a supporting role. However, her you know her counterpart Sharshi Ronan not nominated in the female actor category for lead performance. Yeah, I I think that's probably like the one standout when you look at the the acting categories. I don't think there was anything else you know too terribly surprising in, in what we saw there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really just wanted to talk about that that Bohemian Rhapsody nomination, and honestly, you know, Black Panther as well, also getting the best cast nomination. Certainly, it has more of a, a well rounded cast than Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. But again, over Widows, like no way. It's pretty good. I don't know. I mean, I agree. I, I think that I would I would choose Widows over it. But I mean, you do have Chadwick Bosman, Michael B. Jordan, Daniel Kaluuya. Lupita Nyong'o, Andy Serkis, Forrest Whitaker, Letitia Wright, Angela Bassett, Sterling K. Brown, Martin Freeman. I, I don't know. I, I I hear what you're saying. I think that I if I sat down and thought about it, I might end up choosing Widows as well. I mean, ironically, there's some overlap in the cast with Daniel Kaluuya, etc. Yeah. But, um, th- I mean, this one I can understand. I mean, certainly more than Bohemian Rhapsody, yes. Yeah. Well, I, I think the only thing to note here is that I think Emily Blunt comes away 
looking really good at the SAG Awards. She gets nominated for both uh, Best yeah. Female Actress in a Leading Role for Mary Poppins Returns, as well as Supporting Role for her role in A Quiet Place. And, and more power to her. <clears throat> she is one of, one of the best that we have. She was great in A Quiet Place. And I'm going to see Mary Poppins tomorrow, actually. So I'm excited to see um, you know her in that movie. I, I can't imagine that I'm not going to, even if I don't love the movie, at least love her performance in it. Yeah, and then kind of the other kind of big acting winners, I think, that are, there's probably like three or four of them, but A Star is Born gets lead actor and lead actress. Uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me gets lead actress and supporting actor. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Green Book gets uh, lead actor and supporting actor. So, yeah. And all, de- all deserving. Yeah, and then, of course, you have the, 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 the trio from The Favorite, Olivia Coleman and Best Lead Actress, and then Emma Stone and Rachel Weiss for supporting actress. Right. So that kind of rounds out. Kind of everything there. I guess. Also, I guess I should note again: Black Klansman getting both supporting actor and act mm-hmm. and lead actor with John David Washington again and Adam Driver. Yeah. All right. I think that's. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about here from either of the award shows? Other than that, I think we've we've just about wrapped this one. Yeah, I think I think we're good. I think we we hit all our bases on this. Awesome. Well, that will just about do it then for episode twenty six of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? You know, we've talked about Roma. Which, you know, again, to reemphasize, might be one of the best movies that uh, we've ever seen, let alone this year. And, and then also The Mule and all these nominees. Anything else you want to add? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a great time for, for movies right now. There's so many good movies. If you open your paper to where the showtimes are and point to a movie, chances are it's probably going to be something really good and, and really worth seeing. So, you know, whatever your cup of tea may be in terms of, you know, genre of movie. Um, I think there's something out there for uh, you to watch and that you're going to really enjoy uh, because it, it really is that time of the year when there's so much so much good stuff out. Um, so by all means, go out to the theater, you know, take your family out for the holidays. Um, it, it's a great thing to do, you know, to go, go to the movies. There's so much so much great stuff to see and, you know, go support these uh these great pieces of work yeah absolutely and i think as we've kind of seen reviews for these christmas day releases trickle in and this these really late releases in the year some of the ones that we were suspecting weren't going to all be all that great have actually gotten somewhat positive reviews i mean i was really worried that aquaman was going to be even worse than some of the other dceu movies that we've seen recently and then yeah i was gonna mention bumblebee as well but you know aquaman you know in the i think around 70 percent on rotten tomatoes bumblebee in the 90s on Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. I think that you're seeing a kind of, I'm not going to call it a revival, although I think you might call it a revival for the Transformers franchise if Bumblebee is, is as successful as it looks like it might be. But, I mean, Aquaman certainly an improvement, and the way it's tracked in overseas markets and, and its pre-screenings, people think much more highly of it than I expected, and I would even argue that the trailers indicated it would be. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, in general, it's been a very good year for big-budget blockbusters. There have not been a lot of, of clunkers. You know, a lot of the movies that people are pointing to as, as clunkers are, you know, movies which, with, with not as big a budget, I mean, you know, with, what movie, movies like Mile 22 and, and 14, whatever that Clint Eastwood movie is called about the train to Paris. Oh, um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, 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 the, the But, the, you know, the, these are some of the movies that people are pointing to as the worst, whereas, you know, big movies like Avengers Infinity War, Aquaman, you know, the, the list goes on, Mission Impossible, all really delivered on what people were wanting. And, and I think it just goes to show that, that maybe big budget blockbuster filmmaking is having a little bit of a, a comeback, which is great. Yeah, I mean, the one exception might be Mortal Engines, but that, uh, as we kind of discussed on... Yeah, if you want to count that, yeah. 
I mean, yeah, its budget was over a hundred million, I think. So fair, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, fair but enough. but obviously, I would say yeah, the big clunkers there being Mortal Engine. I'd say in the big budget category, Mortal Engines, which has taken a huge hit in terms of the revenue it's going to generate, and then I'd say probably Crimes of Grindelwald, which probably isn't yeah. isn't taking that big of a fair. hit in the revenue department, but I think ultimately was was reviewed pretty negatively. Quality wise, yes, doesn't doesn't hold up with a lot of those yeah. others. And Ready Player One, which still made a ton of money. Oof, let's not talk about that. Well, it didn't get nominated for best best motion picture drama. So there you How, go. Hallelujah, man! You, you, if if that had happened, the rant that would have been sued would have been much worse than what you all had to endure. Man, oh man! All right, Scott. I think we'll we'll cut our we'll cut our losses there. Where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarvey Dent. Awesome, and I can be found over on Twitter at S Shelton. 2013 and you can also find our podcast on twitter and we'd love it if you follow us over there on at media plug pods and we'd love it even more however if you, if you checked out our podcast patreon page where there are a bunch of reward tiers that you can check out and depending on how much you're willing to pledge to the podcast you can get you know different different access you, know, you can get the podcast early you can get to contribute to the movies that we talk about on the podcast all sorts of stuff that you can go check out over there at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods and we'd really appreciate it, even if you just contribute at the one dollar level uh, again www.media www.patreon.com slash media plug pods to check us out for yourself if you choose not to support us over on patreon that's totally fine you can still find us on apple Podcasts, where we'd also appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribe and share it so that we can continue to reach a broader audience all right i've said enough we really appreciate all of you taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies Episodes are coming thick and fast this time of year, so keep an eye out in the coming week for our year-end top 10 episode with our friends over on the Purely Nostalgia podcast, as well as our next core episode of the podcast, on which we'll be reviewing two more of the many movies that Scott was just referencing that are coming out here towards the end of December. We'll let you know. Again, we'll give you guys an update on what those movies are going to be, but we hope you'll join us again then. Until next time, we hope you have a wonderful day. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Happy holidays, everybody.